Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It's Monday morning, October 31st, 8436661937. That makes it Halloween. Am I right? Oh, yes. About halfway through the sentence, I realized it's um it's Halloween. Mm. That means Thanksgiving is around the corner. That means Christmas <laughs> is around the corner. That means the end of one year, the beginning of another is just around uh, the corner. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Good morning, Freehold. Good morning. The Phillies are tied 1-1 in the World Series against the Houston Astros. Um, lit up Verlander, got behind 5 nothing. came back, won the game in, uh, in the bottom of the night or top of the ninth, I guess, uh, and then lost to, I think, a better pitcher than Verlander at this point in his career. Game three tonight at 8.05. Nobody cares. We just love free hell, right? Nobody cares that the <laughs> Phillies and Astros are playing in the World Series. I kind of um, watch it if if I have time, and if there's nothing else on, I'll watch it. You know, I saw something interesting, interesting over the weekend. Last year. The Yankees are in their second longest run of not going to a World Series, that being 13 years. I think they went one other period of time, 17 or 18 years, eons ago, but they're in, they're in their 13th consecutive year of not going to the World Series. Uh, it caught me off guard. I thought they had been to the World Series within the last 13 years, but they were talking about analytics in baseball, and um, Cashman is the GM, and I guess the Steinbrenner family are still the owners, not George, obviously, he's deceased, but the Steinbrenner family are the owners, and they've got kind of a, um, they've got conflict in their front office because some of the, um, some of the new hires are into this analytics, you know, and the um, statistical gurus, and they're talking about what are the two big home run hitters they got, Judge and Stanton, Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other guy that hits it 50 miles, and I mean, he hits it as hard as anybody I've ever seen in a baseball in all my life. But they're talking about how heavily weighted they are to that. They strike out a lot. They don't walk much. They don't hit and run very much. Um, they've got these big names and bright lights, and you would imagine that with the Yankees, and, and they win a lot of games, but come crunch time, they struggle in some of these five and seven game um, series because they're not analytically sound. There you go. That's the word. Yep. Analytically um sound so um i'm pulling for the phillies i'm pulling for the phillies a couple of reasons um dusty baker said over the weekend that everybody in major league baseball is a racist and it's obvious because there aren't any black players on the baseball teams there are a lot of latinos and you know people of foreign countries um central and south america in particular and and some americans but there weren't any um any African-Americans, and that was a travesty, and he really was embarrassed to be a part of the game um, that has been so gracious and kind to Dusty Baker. I don't mm, know how, would he, I I don't know how life would have turned out had Dusty Baker not burnt, bumped into baseball, but, you know, a man's entitled to his opinion. Uh, welcome to the good old U.S. of A. Maybe he can tweet that and not have to worry about, you know, being censored if he, well, that's um, true. If he were to say so. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, um, I'm pulling for the Phillies um, because I think they deserve the world championship the Astros beat on trash cans and now accuse the game of baseball of being racist. That's good enough for me. Craziest sports moment of the weekend. Had nothing to do with the Gamecocks. Tigers were off this weekend. Craziest sports moment of the weekend happened in NASCAR. I thought my TV messed up. <laughs> I mean, it, I really and truly did. Like a fast speed. R- Ross Chastain, for those that don't keep up. That was wild. I NASCAR saw has a season, and then they, they start a playoff. And they seed the playoff drivers based on how their performance was in the regular season. And and it goes one through 16. And they have three races, and the field goes from 16 to 12. And then they have three more races, and the field goes from 12 to 8. And then three more races, the field goes from 8 to 4. And next weekend in Phoenix, I think, there'll be a final four, so to speak, um, kind of a winner-take-all. You know, the driver 
I think it's Joe Logano, Ross Chastain, um, Christopher Bale, and Chase Elliott. Those are the four drivers left standing. And, um, and it looked like yesterday, with 100 yards to go in the race, that Denny Hamlin was going to be the fourth and final driver to make his way into this um, final four uh, playoff field at NASCAR. And Ross Chastain did something that he said he learned in virtual racing. You know, some of the computerized racing where you just, I don't know, you just act stupid because you're not wrecking the car. You don't get hurt. doesn't matter. I mean, the boss isn't mad at you. The crew isn't mad at you. You have to fix the car. You just reboot the program and do it again. But he was running 10th. And Martinsville is one of the three or four hardest tracks on the NASCAR circuit to pass. I mean, th- this new next-gen car, I'm getting inside the weeds or in the weeds a little bit. The next-gen car's biggest criticism has been it's, you can't pass. I mean, you can be a tenth of a second faster than the other guy, but you just can't get around him. I mean, if he keep, holds his line, doesn't make a mistake, the only way you can pass him is kind of nudge him out of the way, short track racing. Uh, you can't do that at some of the big tracks because people get hurt, and this car has been known to injure drivers. Um, so Chastain's running tenth. Hamlin's running fifth, and Hamlin's in the playoffs, and Chastain is, I mean, he's 40 or 50 yards from the next car. He's got to pass four cars to make the play. But it's impossible. There's no way this happens. So Christopher Bell's winning the race. He gets in. Um, Chase Elliott's in because he's been steady Eddie. Um, and Ross Chastain is going to be left out because there's just there's nobody there for him to pass. He goes into turn number three, and instead of slowing down at a half-mile track, flat track like you have to, I mean, they slow down to 60 or 70 miles an hour in the turn. I'll just say this. The average speed, the average qualifying lap at Martinsville is about 95 miles an hour, 92 miles an hour. So you know they got to slow down somewhere in the 60s. Ross Chastain went into um, number three and just bumped into the fence, held it on the floor, and rode the fence all the way around the turn from going into turn number three, coming out of turn number four, going down the, uh, the front straightaway across the start-finish line, and went from 10th to 5th in one half, really one-third of one lap. And I've never, I mean, I've watched racing all of my adult life. I've never seen anything as crazy as that. Um, it looked like, I mean, Rev, you, you text me, but it looked like mm-hmm. the TV was messed up. I mean, everybody else was going to one speed, and there's this uh, there's this other car going. I mean, his lap speed was two and a half, excuse me, his time on the last lap of the race was two and a half seconds faster than the qualifying lap of the pole center. I mean, in a sport where tenths count and a hundredths count, I mean, the top three were separated by like seven one hundredths of one second. Ross Chastain was two and a half seconds faster in one lap than the pole sitter was in the entire race. I've never seen anything like it. And he perfectly timed it, too, because (laughs) he passed right as they went over. And and he'd already passed. I mean, he'd already passed from 10th to 5th. I mean, it takes you 20 laps to pass one car at Martinsville. I mean, you kind of beat on them a little bit, and you get inside of them a little bit, and they close you down. I mean, it's just the nature of short track racing. And he just, I mean, I don't know if he closed his eyes or not. I mean, I don't know how much his skills involved in that or not. Now, Carl Larson said something interesting after the race. I don't know if you saw this or not. Mm-hmm. Larson said it turns our sport into a circus. I mean, we're professional race car drivers. Oh, and, that, and that's, that's rich. But that's, that's pretty embarrassing. But he admitted, he said, I've done it. He said, I did it at um at something similar to that. And I remember a few years back, he said, and I thought about it when I got home. That's not racing. I mean, that's that's um, that's um turning into a carnival or a circus. And, um, and Joey Logano said after the race, he said, I just hope this doesn't become normal. I mean, you know, if you're behind a car on a short track, 
and you just decide to not try and pass him with a typical race mode, but just go to the wall, you know, peg it to the floor and just ride the wall all the way around the outside. It's a little bit like football at arena football. I mean, it's, it's a risky move, though, all or nothing. I mean, he could have wrecked himself, could have been hurt. But is it racing? Kyle Larson says it's not. Joe Logano says it's not. Uh, most of the drivers. Unless they would have thought about it. Well, I mean, most well they've thought about it. I mean, they said they've tried it in some of these video games. But uh, and, and and even Ross Chastain said it makes no sense to do what I did, except in that moment. I mean, I, I'm racing to get in the four to, you know, the four man playoff. The only way I can get there is to pass five cars, and the only way I can pass five cars is basically driving the wall, hold uh, holding on to the floor, and cut. What's shut your my opinion? Eyes. Is it racing? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm perplexed. I mean, it was it was crazy I mean, to watch. It's interesting. Oh, it was unbelievably be. interesting. Yeah. And I mean, it's got a lot of people like me talking about exactly. this morning. And YouTube was, I mean, it had videos, NBC News, which never covers racing, was showing it, ESPN, which hardly covers racing, you know, showed some of the replay. There's no question about it. It was intriguing, interesting. There's a storyline there. But as somewhat of a racing purist, I don't know. I mean, I'd like to believe that race car drivers require skill. And I don't know how much skill there was to that. I mean, it's basically you, you ride the wall. You just hold it on the floor, hold your um, kind of hold the car into the wall, close your eyes, maybe, maybe not, and just go and try to pass as many cars as you can before you get to the start to finish line. Now, now in his case, I understand why he did it. I mean, it's the only. I mean, if if winning, if winning requires insulting the rules of the sport, winning comes first. I mean, I, you know, I, I guess that's the nature of. Um, I was trying to think of a parallel in baseball, basketball, football. And I really can't. I mean, I can't come up with a parallel to what Chastain did yesterday to get into the um, to the final four. So for the NASCAR fans out there, the few of us left, um, it's a four-team. Uh, it looked like Denny Hamlin with 20 yards to go in the race until Ross Chastain did something. I'd ne- and I needed some good news. I needed a big laugh after Saturday night <laughs> yes, and the egg, uh, the egg your Gamecocks laid around. Mm-hmm. Oh, my, oh, they're mine. <laughs> I mean, I'm a Phillies fan and a Ross Chastain fan. Uh, that that would have been my exciting moments of yeah. the uh, of the sports weekend. Uh, wow, uh, you had to see that coming. I I was there for that mess. I, I was not that way. You oh you didn't go. Oh, Mister Gamecock. You, so you must well, have I mean, seen what was no, coming. I told you I had some things I had to take care of, and I did. I took care of some of those things I had to take care of. Um, I mean, I don't know how you didn't see that coming. When you look at our offense, and I say our, it's the game, putrid. The Gamecocks offense during even the Texas A&M game, outside of the points we were spotted at the beginning of the game, yeah, they uh, they pretty much lived up to expectations. But, but I've told you this a hundred times. I mean, off the air, you and I, I mean, you, you, you said, you know, man, I don't know football like you do, and I don't know fixing equipment like you do uh, by any stretch, but, but I've played a lot of football, and I've followed football all my life. I've coached a little bit of football. Um, offensive, the, 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 the the intent of offensive football is to put defenses in conflict. I mean, I've told you this a hundred mm-hmm. times. I thought and, about that Saturday night when I, mean, I was watching the game. I, I said to myself, and you should be proud of me because you've taught me well in the <laughs> yeah, weeds. Okay, be I careful said, how you I, listen to me, but continue. I said, it looks like to me that uh, their, def- their defense is not in conflict. They knew the all. plays. At all. They knew the plays. Yeah. They were calling our plays before we ran our plays. Right. We don't have good enough players. I mean, there, there are a couple of teams... It doesn't matter if you know the plays or not. I mean, if Vanderbilt's playing Alabama, it doesn't matter if Vanderbilt knows Alabama's plays or not. If um, if you know, if if one of these D two schools are playing Georgia, it doesn't matter. I mean, if Duke's playing Clemson, it doesn't matter if Duke knows Clemson's plays or not. They're just not going to stop them because one team's better. But I mean, when you're the Gamecocks, you're kind of lumped in the uh, the fair to fair to middling. 
you know, group of teams. And, um, and the last thing you can afford is the other team knowing your place. But here's the deal. And the best there is in football today is coaching at Liberty. I mean, it's hard to believe this, but the, to me, personally, the best offensive mind in football today is coaching at Liberty. I mean, I get Josh Heupel at Tennessee is lighting it up. I get that Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss is really, really good. I mean, there's some bright offensive mind. Kendall Bryles at, at Arkansas does a lot of things that put defenses in conflict. But the best guy on the planet right now in college football is Hugh Freeze. I mean, his offense consistently puts defensive players in conflict. And what conflict is, Reb, is when you have to decide, is this guy the likely? In other words, you prioritize how are they going to attack a defense? I got a tight end. I got an H-back. I got a tailback, quarterback, wide receiver. Um, they give me multiple looks. They, 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 they run slant patterns and out patterns. And they do all these, all these things every game. And I'm always in conflict. I mean, Hugh Freeze does that to a defense. He puts a defense in perpetual conflict. The linebacker doesn't have one read. He's got three reads. The safety doesn't have one read. He's got three reads. The D-line's going like, okay, are they pulling, trapping? Are they doing this? Are they doing We don't do any of that. We, we just don't do any of that. And I, I, look, I'm not pointing fingers because it's, it's, it's a hard job. But, but the way you win football games is to put – an offensive game plan and scheme is only successful when you put a defense in conflict. Unless – Unless you're Clemson playing Duke. Unless you're Alabama playing, you know, Vanderbilt. I mean, talent, I mean, it carries the day there. But when you're in the group of teams that South Carolina's in, similar talent, very similar talent, um, and Missouri had similar talent. I think South Carolina's got better talent than Missouri. But I think A&M's got better talent than South Carolina. But, but they're all kind of batched in there together, and coaching becomes priority. Coaching becomes a big deal, and and it looks to me like the Gamecock offense hardly ever puts a defense in conflict. It simply does not. Missouri almost knew the plays we were going to run before we ran the plays, and Missouri's um, Eli Drinkwitz is a pretty good offensive coach, and he takes Wake Forest-like talent and beats pretty good teams or competes with pretty good teams. I mean, he was up on Georgia late in the year, and then Drinkwitz put on a clinic as far as I'm concerned. I mean, the South Carolina coaching staff got carried to the woodshed. I mean, they really got embarrassed as far as I'm concerned, both sides of the ball, offense in particular. But we got all excited about Kentucky with a backup quarterback, and, and they helped us a good bit. We, we got really excited about A&M, and, and we found out afterwards that, um, I mean, we know, in a, we know A&M spotted the Gamecock 17 points in the first 19 yards, and then we find out that A&M players are smoking weed you know, in the locker room before the game. So you don't know how motivated they were. There had to be a sense of, I don't know, I just, you had to see this coming. But but there, there, something's got to change about this offensive game plan. I mean, it's just not good at all. And I'm not, once again, I'm not fire the coach guy. That's Shane Beamer's job. He'll figure out when and why and how and, and where. And social media is being brutal, well, by I mean, the way. But social media should be brutal. Satterfield. I mean, when you say that there's, there's a kid on South Carolina team named Jaheim Bell. I mean, he's an offensive weapon. I mean, you don't really know where to use him. Is he a tight end? He's too fast. Is he a wide receiver? Not fast enough. Is he an H-back? Too big. You know what I mean? But, but he's a guy you've got to figure out a way to get the ball in his hands. He was on the sideline more plays than he was on the field. So how can an, an explosive weapon like that be out of the game more than he's in the game? And I heard Beamer yesterday say, well, we got certain packages and, you know, rotation of packages. And it doesn't matter. I mean, if this kid is a playmaker, he's got to be on the field about all the time. That's the nature of offense. That's what Hugh Freeze does. Hugh Freeze puts a defense in conflict, gets the ball in the hands of the kids on his team that can make plays, and just has at it. 
And and the Gamecocks just don't do that. And, and once again, I could get w- way in the weeds about pro-style offense, seven-step drops, uh, you know, weak side protection. I mean, I know a little bit about that. But it's just um, there is no rhyme or reason as to what South Carolina tries to do on offense. And something's got to change. I mean, this is who they are now. This isn't a one- or two-game phenomenon. Um, when you depend on block punts, kick returns, and turnovers to win football games, you're not going to win a lot. You just simply are not. Um, yeah, when you win the turnover battle against Tennessee at Williams-Brice, uh, five to one, you got a chance to win. I mean, I think Wake Forest turned the ball over six times in one quarter against Louisville and lost 48 to 21. Nobody wins turning the ball over six or seven times, and the Gamecocks have benefited from teams making mistakes, and they have not. So let's give, I mean, you know, his team is not very talented. Makes you know when they don't make mistakes, got a chance to compete. But if the other team, does, your strategy to win can't be hoping the other team makes mistakes. I mean, if we go into a game saying, "Hey, we got to win the turnover battle by three, or we don't have a chance to win because our offense just sucks," you, you got to address what the issue is. And I and I just don't buy that it's all Rattler. I mean, Rattler's got some issues, but I think you're putting in a position of not succeeding. I mean, I don't care who the quarterback is. Did you hear is. his comments after the game? Yeah. I mean, he, he said, I, I, mean, he, he, I don't know if he meant to say this or not, but he said, I, I really, there's a lot of times I don't know what to do. I don't know that we understand exactly what Ooh. we're supposed to do. Well, I mean, if you don't know by now, it's either your fault or the offensive coordinator's not creating clarity with what needs to happen. And I've watched this team play for two years, and there is no offensive philosophy here. It's just like, you know, let's try this for a little while. Let's throw this handful of bull crap against the wall and see how much of it sticks or not. And I just go back to Jaheim Bell. I mean, he's a, he's a potential playmaker, and he's on the sideline more than he's in the game. Um, so, something's wrong there. Something's broken there. Um, and Beamer's got himself in a box because the offensive coordinator is one of his best friends. I think he was in his wedding, if I'm not um, mistaken. My, my dad always told me, try to not work with friends if you don't have to. Don't go into business with friends if you don't have to. Friendships are deep. They're they're sincere. Uh, they're very intentional, but very often they blind you as it relates to the business decision that you need to make. And it's obvious to me. I mean, it's obvious to me. I'm not the coach. I'm not the coaching staff. I'm a fanan. That's short uh, short for fanatic. So so take my opinion for what it's worth. Um, but but it, something has to change, or this team isn't going to get a whole lot better. Let's take a break. We'll be back. In just a minute. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Vance in Pembroke, North Carolina. Morning, Vance. Good morning. How you fellas doing? Good morning. How are you? Doing well. Uh, as a former, as a former NASCAR fan, I did see the highlights of uh, Ross Chastain. And if it would have been Ironheart, he would have moved them the old-fashioned way. But to me, this is my opinion, Ross Chastain threw the hell out of Mary and scored. That's, 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 that, that's, that's my a, take. And that's a good take. That's yeah. kind of the right analogy. He threw the ultimate Hail Mary, it stuck, and he won. Um, it's kind of interesting. His owner said after the race that Ross is the kind of driver that when it's time to win, there are no rules. And I'm not saying that Logano and Kyle Larson were having some. I mean, they weren't sour grapes. They were just concerned about, you know, this can't be normalized. I mean, we can't go to a race and the guy in second place, you know, all of a sudden do what Chastain did. I mean, you know, you could be in second. That would be the best place to do. Tear up a race car, but you win the race. And, I mean, I think that's what Logano and Larson, and I think Chastain admitted that a little bit after the race, that, um, no, I wouldn't do this under, I mean, obviously I would do this under normal circumstances. But but it, 
Rev, I think you'll agree. It looked like something was wrong with everybody else's car. <laughs> or, or the TV had gotten sped up some sort of way. I mean, it, it was in it, real speed. but it, when It I, doesn't look real when you see it. It didn't look it. real. It looked like a video game. Yep. I mean, it really did. Everybody else is doing what they've always done, and that's try to get to the bottom, you know, gouging and rooting one another out and banging and beating them. I mean, that's what they do on a half-mile short track. That's why NASCAR has fenders. I mean, you can't do that with Formula One. You can't do that with Indy cars because you don't have fenders protecting the tires. You can do that in NASCAR. If it ain't rubbing, it ain't racing. You know, I mean, you've heard those old uh, racing analogies. But uh, what Chastain did, and I mean, go to YouTube and watch it. I mean, it, it's, it's bizarre to see how much faster he was going around that wall than everybody. I mean, he's 25 miles an hour faster than anybody else. I mean, the cars at the bottom are running 70, 75, 65. He's running 100. You know, up by the wall, and it's obvious. I mean, when you, you know, you've, you've seen a car. I mean, you've been on the interstate running 75. You know how fast a car when they're running roughly 100? You know how fast they go by you? And that's what it looked like on the uh, on the racetrack. And, <laughs> but, and I mean, I, I think Chastain even said, I mean, I, I listened to the press conference after the race. Not, not you know, when he, uh, in pit road or on pit road when they speak to him for a second or two. And he said, you know, I'd have to think about this, you know, but I knew that was my only shot. And and like his team owner said, you know, Ross is the kind of guy when it, when it's win or not, there are no rules. And he's gotten in trouble this year because of that, because he's run over people. And, um, and really can truly, I think what Larson and Logano were saying is let's not, let's not allow ourselves to become exhibits. You know what I mean? We're race car drivers. I mean, there's a certain level of skill and professionalism involved in this, um, I mean, how, how interested would a football game be if everybody threw the proverbial Hail Mary every play? You know what I mean? I mean, it'd be more of a, a game of chance and luck than it would skill. Um, you design a game plan, you recruit good players, you you know, you know, put together a game plan. Could have used some of that Saturday night. Well, I mean, could have used a lot of that Saturday night. And um, and I'm telling you guys, this isn't going to get better if you're a Gamecock until something, so some sort of change is made. I mean, there's a body of work now to see. We're about a year and, what, two-thirds into this thing, a year and three-quarter into this thing the offense is what the offense is and and i just think it's um it's underwhelming not because of the lack of talent but i just don't i don't think this offense puts defenses in conflict and makes them consider some of the options available and that's the nature of college pro football's always been that way you hear uh, pro football coaches and scouts and gms say you know matchups 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 i mean you hear that over and over again you know we had this matchup we got that matchup i've read somewhere that nfl games come down to about a dozen matchups per Sunday. You know, did I get the right matchup? We got the right matchup. Let's take advantage of it. And um, and when you see the defensive line from Missouri raising their hands, I mean, they had a signal. They knew when it was a pass. They knew when it was a run. Um, and, and once again, if you don't have to honor run and you're a defensive lineman, it's easy to play. If you don't have to honor pass and you're a D lineman or a linebacker, it's easy to play. I mean, it's real easy to take that half of the game out of the equation. If you're a safety and you know it's a run play, you just crash. I mean, you just crash. You don't even consider, you know, play action or getting beat behind you. And it looked to me like they had a real good understanding. It looked like they knew what we were running better than what we did. You know, <laughs> they mm-hmm. knew the plays uh, better than we knew the plays. And something's just a miss there. There's a disconnect. And once again, this isn't a one or two game phenomenon. Go back to Kentucky. The offense didn't do much. I mean, it did okay in the second half. Um, and then against Texas A&M, they, they were gifted 17 points, figured out a way to score 13, and um, and then, you know, lay a big egg um, against a— how did, it, 
how did it look on TV uh, as far as officiating? Because especially during the second quarter, I, I mean, think the, SEC officials sucked. The, the crowd was, I mean, it, but, I mean, you're it, it was your, pretty rough but, for I mean, a while. You, when your team sucks, you blame the officials. Sure. You know, the, the, the average like fans, there were some calls that were well, I, mean, I think egregious. there was a pass interference call, but I mean, the, the Gamecocks kicked a touch, excuse me, scored a touchdown, kicked a field goal. Yeah, I mean, not that I, it would have made a difference. It, it but, would not have made a difference. But I just say this, the SEC officials suck. And the SEC and ACC and Big Ten for this um for that reason. I mean, all of these leagues now have enough money to employ full time officials. I mean, it's time to do that. I mean, it's time to have people on payroll with these varying and different leagues. I mean, when you go negotiate with Fox, tell them you need an extra million bucks or two million to pay the officials. You know, for a twelve uh, game season and including you know uh, conference championship games and the um and the uh, the fourteen playoff. Uh, Clemson's got a big one this weekend. We'll talk about that. Um, Friday, the Clemson travels to one of the storied venues in all of college football, South Bend, uh, Notre Dame Stadium. Uh, Touchdown Jesus will be on full display. And um, kind of interested to watch a Southern team. I'm always interested to watch Southern teams go up to South Bend and play there. Um, one place I'd love to go, and, uh, and I never have. We got to get to these um, midterms. I mean, this is, a, um, this is the pivotal week. You know, somebody said yesterday, and I watched – all of them Sunday morning shows, knowing that we had our job to do this week. And I'm telling you, man, they're, they're turning themselves. It's political and um, and journalistic jiu-jitsu like you've never seen before. Chuck Todd had John Sununu, excuse me, is it Chris Sununu, the governor of New Hampshire, on with him. And he basically said, I mean, he, he did everything he could do to convince John, I mean, Chris Sununu that you're doing the wrong thing by endorsing and supporting these um, these deniers. I think he used the word the denialist within the Republican Party. And Sununo, I mean, he kind of got aggressive. And Sununo was no America firster. I mean, he kind of got real aggressive in pushing back, saying, Chuck, get out of the bubble. I mean, everybody doesn't work at Rockefeller Plaza. Stop. I mean, you wanted to be about abortion. You wanted to be about January 6th. Now you wanted to be about the, the Paul Pelosi or the connection to January 6th. I mean, this guy's a nut. I mean, you know, we got nuts everywhere. And nuts do crazy things. I mean, this guy's a... um. I mean, read a little bit about the um, the perpetrator of the crime in San Francisco that the the mainstream media is now trying to make, you know, the centerpiece of this midterm election. Here's why you can't vote for those MAGA extremists. I mean, they take hammers and hit innocent people in the heads and they break into Capitol buildings. And I mean, it's all about January 6th. And, and now it's Paul Pelosi and whether or not, you know, there's a connection there. Where's Nancy? I mean, how many times, you know, they, they say this nut was running around his house yelling, where's Nancy? I mean, it's a bit odd, but we'll let some of the uh, police reporting do. Let the police of San Francisco do their job, and then we'll find out what the truth is. But um, they're, they're trying to identify this guy as a mag extremist, and there's a connection here between January 6th and, you know, Paul Pelosi getting attacked. I just wish they paid that much attention when Scott Scalise, Scalise got shot by Bernie Sanders supporter or when somebody was apprehended outside of Kavanaugh's house. When Rand Paul got beat up. Or when Rand up. Paul got beat up by his neighbor, you know, and, and Hillary, or I think it might have been Pelosi, says, you know, he probably deserved it. You know, the double standard of the media. But th- th- there, there's um, there's a silver lining here, and that is that the media has so little credibility with the American people that the American people are basically rebuking anything. In other words, Chuck Todd tried as hard as he knows how to convince whomever's watching Meet the Press, I being one, that this election has to be about salvaging democracy. This election has to be about existential threats. I mean, it, it, it must. I mean, it can't be about the economy. It can't be about inflation. It can't be about, you know, supply change and, uh, you know, the way we live. It's got to be about this threat to democracy. 
this imminent threat to democracy. I mean, we, 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 how can we not make it about that? And Sununu said, um, as I believe, Chuck, most people could care less about January 6th. Most people could care less about what happened to the, um, I mean, it's unfortunate, it's tragic, I wish them nothing but the best, but the majority of people aren't going to the polls saying, you know, I'm voting for these Democrats because of that, you know, that, that connection between January 6th and Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's husband. It, I mean, they, they so insulated themselves from reality. And, and it's a little bit inspiring to me to watch some of the polling. The media's trying as hard as they ever have in human history to beat Republicans. Let me say that again. They're not reporting on elections. That They're not, you know, giving any commentary on where the races are. They're doing everything in their power to try to continue or convince you to continue electing Democrats, and it's simply not working. I mean, people believe they're lying eyes, right? I wrote some notes down this morning. I actually found a couple of articles over the uh, over the weekend that I found interesting. Um, there was a – what's Jesse Waters used to do? I mean, Jesse kind of made his – I mean, his claim to fame was man on the street when he would walk out for Hannity or O'Reilly and he would engage, you know, average people on average days talking about average issues. And um, these were, I don't know, Rev, the most consistent issues that people brought up when the Washington Post went out on the street and spoke to people. Um, Here's some quotes. You ready? I feel really squeezed by inflation, particularly grocery prices and the high cost of gas for the past year. President Biden said this was going to be temporary. And it's been going on for more than a year now. I've started to think the president doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, here's another one. I want a secure border. And I don't understand why people like Kamala Harris say the border is secure when everyone can see it's not. I mean, the, the media goes out and says, hey, did you see what happened in San Francisco with Nancy Pelosi's husband? Uh, no. How about January 6th? Do you believe there's a connection to that in January 6th? And here's what they say. No, I haven't watched the hearings about January 6th. What happened that day was awful, but I hadn't thought about it in a long time. I mean, that, that's where the majority of Americans are. And Chuck Todd can't believe that he doesn't have the power any longer to convince the American people you don't need to be thinking about what you're living and what you're experiencing and what the real world is, uh, is presenting you with, but rather what we say the narratives need to be, what we believe the issues should be. Um, I'm not comfortable with all the sexual stuff they're teaching kids in schools these days. Um, I really don't care about Donald Trump. I don't care what he's doing right now. Maybe I'll think about it more if he decides to run for president next year, but right now I could care less. But this is where people honestly are. Um, they're trying to make this about abortion, you know, extremism. And, and, and now the Paul Pelosi January 6th connection is something, I mean, I guess this is the Hail Mary. This would be the, um, the NASCAR move of all NASCAR moves, if they could convince, I mean, Ross Chat, maybe hire Ross Chastain and let him go out and do an ad for Democrats trying to convince them, you know, don't worry about inflation, don't worry about the economy, don't worry about crime, don't worry about immigration, but rather worry about January 6th and abortion and this um this situation in San Francisco that happened um, this past Friday. People don't care about that, guys. When eggs are twice as, as much as they were, my wife told me Saturday something interesting. She said she goes to the grocery store. She got really custom to a um, a certain price of a certain product that she buys a lot of. And it's been five bucks forever. You know, four twenty nine, four forty nine, four fifty nine. I mean, she's seen it go from four to five dollars. She said in the last year, it's gone from five to eight, and it makes her mad. And she wants to blame somebody for that. Now, my wife's not 
politically inclined. I mean, she's not. I mean, she's the um, the wife of a former politician, but she wants to live and let live. She doesn't care much about all that nonsense. But she knows that the thing that went from four to five dollars over the last twenty years went from five to eight in a single year. And one party's been in charge while all that went down. Take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, the sad thing about all this is if that hadn't have been Paul Pelosi, just another resident in, you know, San Francisco, that guy would be out on the street already. You know, they would have let him go. And But he, he's an illegal alien. He's a nut job. So, you know, they're more than willing to just, oh, well, just let him go. But all this inflation that they're so surprised about, you know, I saw a clip of Jim Clyburn. He actually told the truth. He said, we all knew that all this money we were getting ready to spend would cause inflation. So if if he understands it, I know all of them understand it. So, you know, they better hold on to their coattails because they got Obama out. And if I remember right, Obama lost about 1,100 seats total nationwide, state, county, local, federal. So this is going to probably be worse than than what it was as far as kicking the Democrats out because they they are clueless, and they've gone on the dark side. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. I went back and looked over the weekend in 1930, because we've been quoting some numbers here, in 1930, the Republicans had 270 members of Congress. And I'm talking about the House of Representatives. That's the most there's ever been. Now, what I'd call them, I mean, I guess 1930 would be the modern era. But in the last 50 or 60 years, 247 is the high water mark for Republicans in the House of Representatives. They're 212 today. That There are ranges from 15, Cook Political Report, to 48, um, Trafalgar. You know, we'll find out it'll be somewhere between 15 and 48. Um, I mean, I, I think last week, it might have been Charles or one of our callers said that he had the GOP pegged for about 240. I was at about 236. I don't know that 240 is enough. I mean, it may go better than 240. 240 means they win 28 seats. I mean, I really believe they could win 35 seats and rival the um, the high water mark of 247 in 20. I think it might have been 2015 when they had 247. Um, I mean, we shall see. I mean, nobody knows exactly how this this plays out. But there are about six or eight districts now that are competitive in toss-ups that Biden won by 21 percentage points. Uh, I mean, Washington is an example. I mean, there's a governor's race in Washington, excuse me, a Senate race in Washington, a governor's race in Oregon. I mean, Oregon had a Republican governor in 40 years. Patty Murray is now within the margin of error. You know, for, for a long time, you could not have convinced me that the, the Senate seat in Washington was going to be competitive. I think it is. I mean, I still think Murray wins because I think people in Washington are going to be inclined, Seattle in particular, are still going to be inclined to give the home team the benefit of the doubt. It's a, uh, it's a liberal state. It's a, a state that historically has voted for, for the Democrat. And I think those tendencies will carry the day. But I, I made a note this morning, or actually yesterday, um, Ohio, Florida, North Carolina, done. I mean, I'm almost ready to say Georgia, done. I'm not quite ready to say that because I don't want to eat my words, but Ohio, Florida, North Carolina, done. I mean, that's over with. Um, Wisconsin, done. 
uh, Ohio, excuse me, um, Georgia. I'm, I'm tempted to say done, but but I, I it's still a week, and you still got a novice of a candidate. I mean, the Walker's acquitted himself. You know, well, I don't care what anybody says. Um, he's just goes equipped that Warnock was to go to um go to the U.S. Senate. I mean, who are you to say who's qualified and who's not qualified? But when you look at some of the um, I mean, the Florida polling tells me a lot. The Florida polling has Rubio up ten or eleven. It has um, DeSantis up ten or eleven. Guys, historically, that's been a swing state. And this is some of the um, I mean, this would be the Democrat leaning polling has DeSantis up ten. I mean, Ron DeSantis could win Florida by the same margin Henry McMaster wins South Carolina. I mean, just imagine that. I mean, you know, South Carolina's red. Florida's not. But it's becoming more and more red. And I think it's really Hispanics. I mean, the Hispanic and African-American population, Hispanic in particular, in Florida, have had enough of this nonsense. I mean, they've had enough of gender mutilation and transgenderism and, and all this talk about abortion. They know, I mean, they go to the grocery store just like everybody else does. And when it used to cost 100 and now it costs 150 you know, when, when whatever my wife buys for 5 bucks is now 8 bucks, they don't care about January 6th. They don't care about the connection between that and Paul Pelosi in San Francisco. They're far more concerned about their well-being. That's one very predictable aspect of American politics. When given the opportunity to vote for your self-interest, we normally take you up on it, right? I mean, everybody votes why, but because, you know, this is in my best interest. This is why I want this party to be in charge or this person to be in charge because at the end of the day, I think it's good for me. That's that's normally our number one priority when we go to the poll. Will this person make my life better or not? Take a break. Back in a minute. I read a good bit over the weekend uh, when my Gamecocks were struggling on offense. I would read the <laughs> so all of Saturday yeah, night. Then. All of Saturday night. Um, yeah, what three hundred total yards or somewhere there about mm. which sucks in today's yeah. college football. But um, so I said it a second ago. Ohio, Florida, North Carolina done. Um. Charles texted me a second ago. He said 245, not 240. I think he's getting close. I mean, the high water mark in really? 2015 was 247, uh, 270, but that was in uh, 1930. That would have been uh, during the Great Depression, 29, 30, 31, 32. Um, and we had 270 Republicans in the, in the, uh, as members of Congress, House of Representatives in particular. So um, they're 212 now. If they pick up 30, they're 242. I mean, there's a pretty good chance they'll pick up 40. Once again, the ranges that I've seen are plus 15 to plus 48. Rick Scott said over the weekend, and he's got some internal numbers. I mean, I got, I'll assure you that Scott's got some um, legitimate polling. I'm not talking about NBC News or the Wall Street Journal polling. I'm not talking about the, um, the skewed polling, the summertime polling that is intentional to try and discourage Republican donors from giving money to Blake Masters or giving money um, to a, a Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. I mean, this is legitimate polling. And I think for Scott to say we're going to have 52 seats in the Senate, um, I mean, I'm saying 53. I've heard several folks say 54. I think Philip Lowe um, said Friday he thought the Republicans would end up with 54. I'm still at 53. You asked me during the break about Arizona. Mm -hmm. I still can't get there. I mean, I can't go to a place of clarity. I mean, it's a toss-up. There's no doubt about it, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if Blake Masters wins, but I just can't convince myself to feel as good about Masters as I do about Walker. Something's happened in Georgia. I mean, even Chuck Schumer said 
you know, off mic or in, uh, yeah. to a hot mic. I'm mean, at a 75 and an 80 year old talk. Somebody's got to yell at somebody so they can hear one another. And it was a um, on an airplane tarmac, and he's like, you know, yeah, Joe, over here, Joe. Um, you know, I can't understand why the people of Georgia would vote for Herschel Walker, but I can understand why the people in Pennsylvania would vote for John Fetterman even after that performance. And it, and it kind of showed me how little Chuck Schumer cares about people in general. I mean, it's all about political power. Fetterman needs to be home resting. Most of us agree with that. Most reasonable people who watch that debate with any sense of objectivity would have to agree that this guy has no business going as a member of the U.S. Senate. I mean, the, one, the two things he has trouble doing are listening and talking. The two things you expect a senator to do are listen and talk. So, uh, you know, when Schumer says, I think we can still get Fetterman across the finish line, he's dazed and confused. He doesn't know what day of the week he is. He probably does need to be in bed resting or in some rehab facility getting better, but, but we need him in the Senate to kill babies. So as long as we need him in the Senate to kill babies, um, damn John Fetterman and his personal plot. I mean, we'll figure that out down the road. And if he gets up here and needs some sort of rehab, you know, we got real good health insurance as members of the Senate. We'll get him on some health care plan and we'll vote proxy if we have to uh, to make sure we, you know, do what Democrats uh, do today. One of the most interesting things I read over the weekend, I actually read a lot, a couple of articles in the American Mind. I mean, that would be the... Um, Kind of the, I don't know, Rev, it would be something similar to the National Review. Uh, they, they talk a lot about independent right, new right. Um, they had a big article about gatekeepers and unauthorized conservatives. I love this language. The, the alt-right has become the independent right. The independent right is the new right. And the word they're using is, or the stories about the gatekeepers of the conservative movement, the National Review, Weekly Standard, Bill Crystal, George Will, William Buckley, um, the Bushes, the Cheneys, um, you know what I mean, the, 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 the neocons, so to speak. And I've argued a lot that the fundamental disagreement within the party is intervention and globalism, but it really centers on neoconservatism. I mean, it, it does. When the neocons um, were ushered in, probably in the 80s, I mean, there's been a strain of neoconservatism in American politics for a long time, but, but it really reared its head in the 80s. Uh, the, the, the coziness of the military industrial complex and the Republican Party, really both parties, but, but the Republican Party more specifically. But now there's this belief, and, and we're talking about Masters and Oz and Vance and um, Walker in Georgia. Uh, but the reason those four excite me is because they are not gatekeepers. They're not orthodox conservatives. They're, they're, you wonder where they'll stand and where they'll land. You know, once they get to Washington, what is their political inclinations? What, what will Herschel Walker make as a priority? I mean, it's easy to say he doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, he's a football player. He won't do anything except what they tell him to do. Okay, if Walker goes there to be a, a placekeeper, who does he listen to? I mean, if Walker's not going to be the, dri the driver of the agenda, who does Walker side with? I mean, do you really believe... That if um if Josh Hawley, J.D. Vance, Blake Masters, and Marco Rubio, Coombsy Walker, and that follows a visit with McConnell, he's going to do what McConnell wants to do. And here's the tragedy of this movement. Here's where we are. And this is what I get real bothered and disgruntled about. So Mitch McConnell has an approval rating with Republican primary voters of 14%. 14%. How can a guy have an approval rating with a, uh, you know, a group of people to 14% and still be its leader. You can't. You just simply can't.
cannot. As I read these stories about um, independent right, new right, gatekeepers, unauthorized conservatives, they're, they're talking about Tucker Carlson in particular. They're talking about Peter Thiel in particular. You know, Peter Thiel nor Tucker Carlson have ever appeared to be gatekeepers. I mean, the gatekeepers were the donor class, the lobbyists, K Street, um, the elites, the establishment, uh, the status quo, the credentialed class. All of a sudden, they have uh, their influence has waned in overseeing, or once again, their word, being the gatekeepers of the Republican Party. And that now, by default, has gone to these independent right leaders. And who are the leaders of the independent right? I mean, I'm asking a question to our listeners. Um, and I think most of us understand what we're talking about. You can call it the new right, the independent right, uh, the, the Make America Great Again extremist, uh, the America First movement. Whatever you choose to call it is fine by me, but it does not ascribe to the notions of the gatekeepers. Um, the article I read referred to these people as unauthorized conservatives. They, they, they've not had the stamp of approval. Tucker Carlson has not been blessed by Bill Kristol. Um, Blake Masters has not been approved of by Mitch McConnell, but but the energy of the party is their is their breath. I mean, it's how they're alive. It's it's how they're. I mean, if Masters wins in Arizona, he's going to win with Mitch McConnell bailing on him. I mean, imagine that. If Walker wins in Georgia, he's going to win with McConnell bailing on him. If um, I'm thinking of another, there's a couple of. I mean, uh, Chewbacca in Alaska. I mean, if she wins, she's going to win fighting McConnell. I mean, a Republican, McConnell's not spending money on Oz or Masters, but is spending money on Murkowski in Alaska trying to be the fellow Republican. I mean, imagine the loyalty to the Republican brand uh, when that's the case. But McConnell sees the writing on the wall and he sees that, um, you know, there's this big disconnect between Washington proper and America. And this led me to the next article I read. This is one of the most interesting stories I've read in a long, long, long time, and it validates some of my crazy thinking um, about moving the Capitol around. Remember I said a long time ago, the best thing to do is put Washington on wheels and move it around mm-hmm. and force the lobbyists and the consultants and the uh, the standard bearers to chase it around. In other words, let's yeah. have the nation, let's have Congress convene in Montana next year. And let's not tell anybody where they're convening the year after that, but then let's go to Texas. Then let's go to Florida. Let us go to Illinois. Let's jump around from place to place. Well, this is an interesting um, kind of a scholarly argument on something similar to what I argued. He's actually a professor. I want to make sure I get this straight. A professor at, um, ah, I tore the page out. Don't have, but anyway, he's a professor of political science at one of our America's universities. Might have been the University of Chicago at Detroit. But he's a, he's a political science professor, and he says that, uh, he begins the article, this is what got my attention, perhaps Washington can't be fixed, but it can be dismantled. I want to read this verbatim because I think this is so interesting. Until recently, there was no way that the federal government can function without a centralized place to conduct business. A major reason that Washington can't be fixed is what's been called the monoculture, uh, the, the monoculture that obtains throughout government. The culture of any place breeds conformity. I mean, I agree with that. The culture of any place breeds uh, some degree of conformity. To refuse to assimilate to a culture is to mark yourself as an outsider. Because the presence of outsiders threaten the maintenance of any culture, cultural insiders often withhold their approval from those who don't conform. I mean, that, that is, in a nutshell, exactly <laughs> what the problem is in Washington. Wow. So here's what he argues. You ready? 
Imagine that a new representative is elected from the state of Delaware. He arrives in the Capitol as an avatar for the culture of Delaware, which is not the culture of Washington. Because he shares the interests of the people of Delaware, he serves as an effective representative, his constituents, but D.C. institutions have a different way of doing things, a different way of governing, socializing, doing business, and influence peddling. This creates a pressure for my representative from Delaware to adapt. I mean, I'm, you, you got to agree with that. After all, if he does it, he won't see, earn many friends and may even find some enemies. And if that were to happen, his tenure in Congress would be very brief. He certainly doesn't want that. So the longer he's in the Capitol, the more he um, agrees to the D.C. way of doing things. This wins him friends, donors, and more elections. After 50 years of public service, our regular Joe from Delaware will be almost entirely unrecognizable to the people he used to represent. That's exactly the way I feel. I mean, they articulate it in a more eloquent way than I would have written it, but it's exactly the way I feel. So here's his solution. You ready? His solution is to do remote government. I mean, he makes the argument that, um, I mean, we shop online, we pay bills online, we bank online, um, we have computers that it allow us to enjoy you know, any sort of entertainment we choose to, why do we all have to gather in Washington? I mean, why can't the, why can't the senator from Delaware stay in Delaware? And, and remotely, I mean, he's talking about Zoom. Remote government by Zoom might be the best way to break this monoculture. If all the official proceedings of the legislature were conducted virtually, this would keep the officials in states that they represent. Not only would they be more aware of the situation in their home state, they would be more accessible to their constituents. He continues. You ready? This would also impede the formation of close relationships and friendships of representatives from other states and hinder coziness between our representatives and the lobbyist consulting class, the, the parasitical body that has so infected the body politic inside the Beltway. These friendships, which the culture of a centralized capital and courage, create an opportunity for an elected official to develop personal allegiances, obligations, and favoritism that may run counter to the interests of the people he represents. Still, it wouldn't be enough to simply conduct official state proceedings virtually. It would be even more important that the business of unelected bureaucrats, I love this, unelected bureaucrats also be moved online. Right now, the staff of the Department of State Internal Revenue Service or the Environmental Protection Agency is largely composed of educated urbanites raised in the monoculture of the university and Eastern Power Corridor. Bam! I mean, can I get an amen on that <laughs> sentence? Let me read it again. Right now, the staff of the Department of State, the Internal Revenue Service, or the Environmental Protection Agency is largely composed of educated urbanites raised in the monoculture of the university and the Eastern Power Corridor. Imagine if the mid-level clerks of the State Department weren't all working together in Washington, but were spread out across the country, working independently at home in Montana, in Arkansas, in Alabama. There would be more potent way. What would be a more potent way to erode the influence of the monoculture in government? Bureaucrats would not have the monolithic personal relationships that they do today. I've argued that you're not going to fix Washington. The only thing to do is move Washington. And I've argued about a Washington on wheels, a Washington that travels around the country and the lobbyists and consultants chasing it everywhere to make sure they get exactly what they need to get. But, but you know, you're once again, if you're not going to fix Washington, 
just disband it, dismantle it. And why is it so crazy to govern virtually? I mean, we, we do everything else in the world. We're buying, I mean, people are buying automobiles on Carvana or Carvana. Pronounce it, Rev. Is it Carvana, Carvana? Carvana. Okay, right Carvana. Um, I got a family in Pamplico. They're Calcutts uh, in Florence. They're Calcutts in Pamplico. Same family, same <laughs> spelling. When you get above Evergreen, it becomes a Calcut. I don't know why, but it's, it's just the way, the way it, it is. is. So Carvana, Carvana, depending on where you're from and where you live. But, but I mean, if we're buying $50,000 pickups, you know, on Carvana, and we're, you know, we're buying uh, some of the, the biggest sector of the economy growing today is virtual, excuse me, is um, e-commerce, online shopping. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it, once again, it's a reach. It's, it's, a, it's an absolute stretch of a concept. But is it worth debating? Is it worth considering? I mean, if we believe Washington is broken and is helpless in trying to fix the problems in Washington, is, do we have a better chance of dismantling it? And, um, I mean, senators and representatives, their job is to vote, right? And Correct. certainly they can handle that logistically from wherever they are. But they can't meet at the five-star restaurants in the middle of the uh, of the evening with um, consultants and lobbyists. Exactly. And, and they can't have these fundraisers day after day after day. It would be, I mean, they would stay far more in touch with a group of people they have asked for permission to go to Washington and represent on their behalf. Let's go to the phone. Here's Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Hey, Ken, you're off to a great start this morning. Uh, you got the best show in PD. There's no doubt about it. We got the only one. It should be the best one. <laughs> Here we <go>. That helps. <laughs> oh, it's a great show. It's probably the best one in South Carolina. I'll put it that way. And part of North Carolina, a big part of North Carolina. But uh, they, uh, you're right on it. And uh, about Carolina, I, I just got to say this. Uh, I was a very untalented football player when I played, but I could read plays really good. I could pick up on, on uh, high school uh, backs and what they were going to do real quick. And so my performance out, outstripped my uh, physical uh, abilities. But uh, So if you can read a play, that just gives you a – yeah, a great advantage over the other team. That's all there is to it. Uh, but uh, I think you got a great idea, and they could, should call it the, the as far as uh, keeping the capital moving or making it virtual. Uh, call it the green green uh, new deal. It, that that's the true green new deal because it'll keep them from traveling quite so much, and put a special green tax on lobbyists that travel about the country. Uh, that that would uh, help a lot, and uh, sell it as that. As far as the news people, the news people, they're in denial. I, I would say it's it's beyond neurotic to psychopathic at this point. As far as them saying, oh, uh, January sixth, January sixth, what 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 happened there? It was it was a bad thing. Uh, it's hard depending on the individual uh, leader. Uh, Trump uh, offered National Guard and everything, but uh, they still want to pin it on him again. I don't know why, but uh, I do know why. But this is psychopathic what they're trying to do is say, hey, don't believe this, all this inflation and stuff. The most important thing for you is to be able to have an abortion in the ninth month of pregnancy. Well, that's just insane on the face of it. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Very kind of him to say we're the best. I mean, the best in the PD. Okay, we're the only one. I mean, we should be the best. We're a um, we're a monopoly. We've seen to that. We we try to pass laws that I've visited. I mean, why do you think we have legislators on this show? 
I mean, to make sure nobody's allowed to ever put a competing product oh, that's right. over the airway. I mean, but I noticed he said uh, all of South Carolina and at least most of North Carolina. So there's so <laughs> many North Carolina. Yeah, he's better. found a better one in North Carolina somewhere <laughs> in his travels. So, um, so what are the what what are the benefits to um? Well, I mean, what, what if we? I mean, I, once again, guys, I know this sounds far fetched, but but I think it's a reach to suggest that we can fix Washington, right? I mean, that that would be. I mean, Washington runs Washington. Outsiders don't run Washington. Once again, when an outsider gets to Washington, the the first thing he tries to do is figure out a way to fit in. The only way to fit in is become an insider. The only way to get reelected and raise money and be popular and get invited to meet the press and, and Fox News to be somewhat of an insider. You might be able to figure out a way to make a few tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in the meantime. And, 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 so. and the majority of, I mean, the, the, the my motivation is to undermine some of the, uh, I don't know, Rev, the informal and organizational um, meetings and structures that happen behind uh, the scenes in D.C. And, and I think I can speak to that somewhat proficiently because having been in politics, I mean, not at the, at the county level, but at the state level. I mean, there's a coziness there that I think is unhealthy for democracy. Um, I'm not saying they're bad people, but they're being paid. I mean, if I'm being paid to go to Columbia or Washington to get something done, my, my, my motivation is not the, the best of the country, right? I mean, my motivation is to make sure this happens or doesn't happen. So, so when, 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 when Rev owns a, um, a multi-billion dollar international conglomerate, and there's some legislation being bandied about or rumored, and we're talking about in a subcommittee or committee. And Rev hires me because or hires me because I'm a former, you know, speaker of the house, and I understand the way that world works. Um, how much harder would that be if we governed virtually? How much harder would that be? I mean, if we didn't have that coziness, didn't have that kind of behind the scenes connectivity one with another. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937, early Monday morning. Starting, I mean, this is the week of, I mean, it's not the week of the election. The election is next Tuesday, but I mean, having run for office before, when you lay your head down this Friday night, you kind of sort of feel like it's almost over, especially in the South during football season. <laughs> I hate to say this, but Saturdays and Sundays are reserved for football and racing down South. And I can remember when I ran for office, that Friday evening, it was like, okay, uh, we're done now. But there's still Monday and Tuesday to go and I's to be dotted and T's to be crossed. But um, it seems, Rev, there's a lot of momentum in the Republican camp. Uh, you know, for a long, long, long time, some of these uh, polls said Masters was down eight or nine and Vance was down five or six and Oz was down 11 or 12 and Walker was down six or seven. I never bought into that. I just simply did not because of the president's approval rating of the wrong track number of the of the country. Political strategist with over 20 years experience in government and politics in Washington. She began her career in 1991 in now what is called the White House Office of Public Engagement. Terry Hasdorf is with us. Terry, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. How are you? <laughs> Am I misreading the political winds as we sit here, what, eight days from an election, a midterm? It seems to me that um, the Republicans have a lot of momentum going into this last week. It definitely seems that way. It looks like the House is going to probably pick up at least between 20 to 25 seats easily, maybe as high as 30. Uh, the Senate is still a little more tight. But, you know, if people really, I think, uh, are concerned enough about what's happening with the economy and other things, I think they're going to turn out to vote. Terry, the, 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 and I get it. I mean, the, the Democrats have tried to not talk about the economy, not talk about inflation, not talk about crime. But it seems to me, and I watched some of the Sunday morning shows yesterday, it seems to me that um, 
that the Republicans have succeeded in not allowing this election to be about anything but the economy, inflation, and they're, they, they just believe they're on the right side of that with independent-minded voters. Well, you know, we are in a position right now where the inflation has just been continuing to get higher and higher. I mean, we're having the worst consumer price index numbers since the early 1980s. Uh, so the last time inflation was this high, Ronald Reagan won a landslide against incumbent Jimmy Carter. So I think you're in a similar setup right now. Uh, Americans are just fed up with it when you can't put food on the table and you can't put gas in your car. You know, it's the economy, stupid. That's what it is over and over. But but there's still limits to this. I mean, I, I'm, it's still hard to convince me, and I'd love to get your take on this. You can't convince me that Patty, Patty Murray's not going to win in, in Washington. You can't convince me that Hochul's not going to be the governor of New York. I mean, they, optimism brings, breeds optimism, and I get that. But there still are places, no matter what the, the sentiment of the voters, independent-minded voters may be, they're still going to remain blue. Well, I think, you know, that was the mindset in Virginia with Glenn Youngkin's race, and look what happened there. I mean, you're right. There are certain places where there's going to be Democrat strongholds, and and no matter what, they're probably going to get put back in. But uh, I think it really depends on voter turnout, and people voting in person is really critical. So, you know, people just need to get out and vote. Terry, let me get your opinion on this. Last question. Um, yesterday during some of the uh, the morning shows, and, and once again, they're, they're not as relevant as they were. They're still somewhat relevant in my world because I do a four-hour, five-day-a-week political radio show, so I have to kind of tune in to, to check uh, check the mail, so to speak. But but they're, they're, they're trying to argue that the, the deniers, they're a threat to democracy. They're an imminent threat, existential threat to democracy, but there are upwards of 200 candidates in 40 different states running, um, doubting the outcome of the 2020 election. And and I've read some, some polling where independents are not that scorned or bothered that people have that opinion of the 2020. Is that Was that a, just a, a misread by the Democrats? Well, I think the 2020 election has definitely been something that's in the back of people's minds no matter what. There's, you know, regardless of where you come down on that, uh, people are, they're frustrated. They're extremely frustrated with what has happened in the 2020 election cycle. So that I think is definitely fueling some of what you're going to see in the turnout that, uh, we're going to have with this election. Terry, thank you for your time. Have a great week. Thank you so much. You too. Okay. Um, kind of an interesting take. Just anytime I see Washington insider and someone who's been in, you know, kind of, I mean, a little bit like, uh, John Decker, someone who's kind of inside the belly of the beast, I think it's interesting to get their take in perspective. I mean, I'll level with you. I I don't think they get it right. I'm sorry. I mean, I think Decker's wrong on most things. I think Terry's wrong on most things because they're so insulated that they live in this bubble wrap (laughs) called Washington. And I think back to what you were talking about last segment. Yeah, I I just don't understand it. And um, I I guess there's a there's a narrative in this election about the um, the amount of money the Democrats spent to elect deniers, and the deniers are going to win about two of every three one of those elections. I mean, they, they were the the Democrats were trying to elect fringe candidates, those who denied the outcome of the 2020 election, and that's not very fringe. I mean, it's just I'm sorry, guys, it's not a fringe concept to question the outcome of the 2020 election. It's very mainstream. I'm not saying the election was stolen, but there are a lot of people in America who have serious questions about what may or may not have happened, and they're not going to take it out on a candidate who says or expresses a belief that I have a lot of questions about the 2020. Um, presidential election. Let's go to the phone. Roger and Coward. Morning, Roger. Good morning, fellas. I think you 
looking at it from a trying to look at it from a totally objective political um, situation, kind of like you were saying this morning, and Bill Maurer has said before. Uh, you know, the media. You know, I think America has gotten to the point, whether we agree that that's good or not, it's past that point that most folks in America, middle America anyway, have gotten to the point of live and let live. And if it doesn't affect me, I'm going to vote based on how it affects me. The media would have you believe that 10% of the population is transgendered based on why they talk about it so much and the Democrats talk about it. They'd have you believe that. They would have you believe that 50% of the women in America are interested in an abortion after six months. I mean, <laughs> it's crazy. And Meyer tried to say that. You folks are stupid. And you think the rest of us are stupid. Most Those issues don't affect most people. In fact, the transgender issue is less than 1%. It's way down to 0.2 or something. I mean, I have an opinion on that. I think it's ridiculous. But people are not going to vote based on something that does not affect me. And it doesn't affect most people. And I think we've gotten, like I said, to a live-and-let-live society for the most part. And until it, you know, arguments today with churches about same-sex and transgender, I've heard a lot of folks in churches that were affected by this say, we're not going to do anything until it affects our church. When it comes home to us, we'll make a decision. Other than that, we're going to pretty much, it's the status quo. And <laughs> the Democrats don't get that. They're, they're trying to project these social issues at the top of the thing. I'll say, I'll go even further. <laughs> you know, I'm sympathetic with Ukraine. But I'm, I'm willing to say, I believe I'm not, you know, America would rather Ukraine fall to the Russians than pay $10 a gallon for gasoline. I mean, you know, if, if that's going to, if, if winning the war for Ukraine against Russia means $10 a gallon for gasoline, then most Americans going to say, let Ukraine fall. Because it's in your best interest. Thank you, Roger. Appreciate that, my man. I'm um, good to hear from Roger. Uh, Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. But I want to go back to something Roger said um, about the. I mean, the the media does try to convince us, and I mean, I, I don't understand why. I mean, unless they're just that insulated. I mean, I can't rem- I can't imagine being that detached from reality. I mean, maybe Chuck Todd lives in a world, but I know he lives in a world I'm not familiar with. I mean, he lives a totally different kind of life than I live. Um, George Stephanopoulos. I mean, I understand those people live uh, unbelievably different lives than I live. But I got to believe that I live a lot more like the masses do than they live. And, and Ref, I believe a lot of the narrative happening today is there was a period of time in American history when, when a, a handful of media members and a handful of politica, politicos and a handful of thought leaders could get together and they could really, I mean, they could formulate the dynamic of the election. And if they wanted it to be about abortion, they could almost make it about abortion. We've seen a decentralization of the media and we've seen the rise of what I call the independent right, the, the radical left. And um, I mean, the gatekeepers are not as powerful as they once were. And, and maybe Meet the Press still believes that they're the gatekeeper of um, political discourse and narrative. They're simply not. Uh, Elon Musk buys Twitter. 
Um, you know, I felt like tweeting yesterday, um, the vaccine is not a vaccine, the election was stolen, and climate change is a hoax. I mean, those are three, I mean, I, I believe that. I mean, I, I believe everything I just said. And I don't pre, believe. pre Elon, you sure. know that that I mean, would have never made it I out. I don't believe. But I mean, why am I not? The media tries to convince me to be ashamed of those opinions when, when there's no reason for me to be ashamed of those opinions because a lot of smart people believe what I just said. There are a lot of smart people in this world who don't believe the vaccine's a vaccine. I mean, there are a lot of smart people who believe the election was stolen. There are a lot of smart people that believe climate change is a hoax. And I think empowering that sort of mindset is something that, that meet the press has to get used to. And this week with George Stephanopoulos and the New York Times and, and the Washington Post, once again, I think we lived in a day when, when those six or seven or eight entities or enterprises kind of got together, colluded, and they could, they could make Rev embarrassed to say the election was stolen. They can make Rev ashamed to believe that climate change was a hoax. I mean, I think climate Not change. Not only embarrassed and ashamed, but scared. Well, to be sure, I mean, for fear of some sort of retribution. Will, will the bank call me and tell me to take all my money out? You know, will they discontinue my mortgage, my loan? That's really the revelation that all of us are experiencing in this in this midterm. And I mean, I think it'll happen in 2024 presidential. And even people like Chris Christie. I mean, the, the former governor of New Jersey and presidential candidate, I mean, he's having trouble understanding that because, once again, these guys have functioned in a kind of a highbrow world. They believe they are entitled to put up the guardrails of where we debate and how we debate and what we debate about, and they just can't, they, they just can't believe that they've not been able to turn this conversation from the economy, from inflation, from crime into abortion, transgenderism. I mean, once again, how many people are really affected by abortion? How many people are really affected by, by transgenderism? How many people really believe? And I think I, I made this plea last week to our female listeners. I mean, how many women out there believe it's okay for a woman to have an abortion in the sixth month of her pregnancy? I mean, I don't know. I'm not a woman. I don't hang around with women. I mean, my daughter and wife are the two women that I have the most contact with. I mean, we got women at work. We got women at restaurants. We got women in all of our worlds. But, but I, don't, I don't talk to women about abortion. I mean, that's not my place. We discuss it over the airwaves. But the media will convince you or try to convince you that 90% of women believe it's okay to have an abortion six months into the pregnancy. I just don't believe that. I don't buy that. The media will try to convince you that the, the debate on climate change is settled. No, it's not. How in the hell do you settle a debate on what the temperature of the planet Earth will be 100 years from now? I mean, how can that be that? How can Barack Obama, who has no degree in anything related to climate or the environment, how can he proclaim the debate is over and half the country believe that? Who are the morons? I mean, once again, I think it's far more moronic to believe the vaccine's a vaccine, climate change is real, and, and, and women want other women to be allowed to abort a baby six months into their pregnancy. But that's what the media has tried to convince you of. And once again, this goes back to the iron sharpens iron. I mean, if you believe in, in some of the worldviews that I have, you better be able and capable and ready to defend those beliefs. If you have an alternate worldview, nobody ever challenges you on that. And when you are challenged, you don't really know how to respond and how to react. I go back to something I said last week about the, uh, the, the two-day conversation we had with Jeff. Jeff may not be a racist, but let's call him one anyway. You see where I'm headed? I mean, you know, uh, the, the, the left does that to the right. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're a denier, 
you're, you're a denier, right? I mean, you deny climate change. You deny the the um the outcome of the 2020 election. You deny that a woman. I mean, it's all these negative connotated words that are associated with people who see the world as we do, racist and bigoted and close-minded and extremist. And the media fans that flame. And I think the American people are finally becoming, uh, I don't know, aware of how corrupt the media is, how one-sided and monolithic they have. There, there's there's a difference in having a common belief and having and taking that common belief and weaponizing against people you disagree with. I mean, there, there's nothing wrong with everybody at the New York Times seeing the world the same way. I mean, I don't think you get good journalism, but you're not breaking any law. But once you take that monolithic worldview and you weaponize the media in a way to attack people who disagree with you, I mean, that's, just, that, that, that's messed up. I mean, that's about as technical as I can get on that. Take a break back in just a minute. 843-661-0937, our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Tim and Florence. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, Ken, I'm calling in reference to the remote D.C. idea. I think it's a great idea. However, in the words of my good old-fashioned country mama, she would always say, if ifs and buts were candies and nuts, it'd be Christmas every day. <laughs> I can relate. And uh, and the reality is no one in D.C. would ever vote for that because that would require them to actually have to spend time amongst their constituency. And nowadays what we see is this beltway lifestyle politicians who are disconnected with the people in their state. If you don't believe me, ask Tom Rice. And as well, I'm going to hang up after I say this, uh, so many U.S. senators and representatives are now from their respective states, but they don't seem to be for their state. And, and, and I mean, this is a radical idea, but I almost think we need to go back to the originality of our Constitution, which allowed the state legislators to choose our senators. And I know that's crazy out there, and it was amended and everything else. But I still think it's a, something that should be reconsidered nowadays. I'll hang up and let you go. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate that. I think that the I mean what 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 Tim demonstrates is a willingness to consider things you probably normally wouldn't. I mean, Tim sounded like a reasonably sane guy. I mean, I think I'm a reasonably sane guy. I mean, I've got some hot buttons like we all do. I got some places that you would go, whoa, Bo. <laughs> You know, pump the brakes a touch there. Wobo. Yeah, wobo. Um, <laughs> that's like, that's two words. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we could make them one. Yeah, yeah. W-O-B-O. Yeah, uh, sure. Wobo. Um, <laughs> isn't that funny? That's hilarious. Okay, good deal. Good deal. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, I got places in my life that, wobo, um, you, you know, slow down there. I mean, that's a little extreme and out there. And, you know, you say that in front of people and you spook them. But um, but but no, there there are a lot of people like Tim now beginning to consider. You know, would you have ever considered this concept? Of course not. I mean, and I'm not saying this happens. I mean, I don't believe it ever happens. But I think it's interesting that the American mind would allow a college professor of political science to um, you know, uh, print an article that he wrote about you know Washington can't be fixed, but it can be dismantled. Um, and the second sentence, do we need Washington, D.C. as a central locus of national power with enormous technological uh, changes and advancements, how business is conducted, how communications work? It may be that a capital city is on the vestige of an earlier era. Perhaps rather than Washington working to fix D.C., we should work to end it. I mean, when you read that paragraph, you think Twilight Zone. 
I mean, you think, wow, that's way out there. No, the American mind is not way out there. And the, the lack of competent government is forcing people to consider things they never would. That's, that's really the narrative. The message here is people are determining through their own uh, ways that government is not competent. It can't be trusted. It, it's not, you know, it's, it's not doing the job it was intended to do via the Constitution and our casting the ballot. So, so once a critical mass of people like Tim and me and other um, normal-minded and fair-minded people stop saying in wobo, but rather <laughs> pursue some of these, um, some of these, I don't know, rev fringy sorts of concepts and ideas, that's really, if government were not failing at every turn, people wouldn't have these far-fetched beliefs. If government demonstrated an ability to be competent, People would say, I get the back and forth. I get the debate and disagreement. But people just believe that government today is so out of touch that they want something different. Back in a minute. I think we've all agreed that the majority of um, intensity around this election is the economy, inflation, crime, right? I mean, there, there, are, some, there are some ancillaries. You got, you know, you got, you got I mean, there'll always be cultural and societal issues about, you know, abortion and transgenderism and sex change and gay marriage and all these other um, incidentals, but but abortion is different. I mean, to me, it is. I mean, abortion is a fundamental issue in American politics. Whether we like it or not, uh, aborting babies is hashed out in the political world because Supreme Court justices are nominated by whom? Presidents. They're confirmed by whom? You know, senators. So it is a very political, um, politically biased operation. Um, why is the court, why was the court in favor of overturning Roe v. Wade because we had quote unquote conservative justices. What is conservatism? It's a political belief. It's a political ideology. The majority of Democrats have tried their dead level best to make this um, election about abortion. Um, elections have consequences. Stop Republicans from criminalizing abortion everywhere. There are a number of ads, kind of cookie cutter ads, but there are a number of ads, uh, you know, making women believe that if the Republicans control the House and Senate. They're going to codify some of the federal legislation. Um, they're going to make uh, you know criminals out of people who have abortions and perform abortions. That's not very popular. But here's my question: I'll pose to our to our listeners: If you're opposed to abortion and abortions against the law, then how do you not criminalize those who break that law? You see where I'm headed? I mean, if it becomes a state right or it becomes states' right, and, and the states decide, you know, when and how and where and at what uh, what time and uh, what are the penalties and punishments, um, it's almost like the, the conservative movement, the Republicans want to um, oppose abortion, but they really don't want anything to happen to those who, who break the law. Um, that There are a lot of ads running in a lot of states showing law enforcement showing up to a, a home, and the, the father answers the door and the, or the husband answers the door and the wife, you know, he wants, you know, the law enforcement wants to know where the wife is. And next thing you know, the wife is in handcuffs in the back of a car. Um, elections have consequences. That's the warning in some of these um, advertisements that Democrat candidates are running. Um, so if we have for a long time um, insisted that we, we want to preserve life, the sanctity of life, life against conception, a lot of debates within the conservative orthodoxy when it comes to that. But, um, but if we are arguing 
And the conservative movement has long insisted that um, that pro-lifers don't want to punish mothers who oppose, excuse me, who obtain abortions. Um, does that position betray the cause of life? I mean, if you're pro-life and, and you want to save babies and you want women to be disallowed from having an abortion at certain points in their pregnancy, what is the crime? What is the criminalization aspect? What should happen? Uh, doesn't it, isn't that logically inconsistent? That I, you know, I want to pass a law that says a woman can't have a baby at six months or six months into her pregnancy. Um, are we serious or not about protecting the unborn if we don't want the woman to have some charge levied against her? Um, I mean, if abortion is murder, I mean, that's what a lot of people believe, especially late-term abortion. If abortion is murder, then why should you let the murderer off the hook? I mean, if um, if, if somebody was, okay, let's use this as, a, as an analogy. I'll be getting real provocative here for a second. Let's say that Rev didn't like me. Something happened in our world, and Rev um, got to the point that he, I mean, he's not going to kill me because he doesn't have guts to do it, but he'll find somebody that does. He's got some money. He's found a hit man. He'll charge $20,000, and Rev says, do it. I mean, it happens. We're right as if it doesn't happen. It happens. I mean, there, there are a lot of stings. You know that portray that to be a real people yeah. are in jail today for hiring hit men and hit women to kill you know and and murder um people because of whatever personal or or familiar situation they've gotten themselves into so if the abortion doctor is the hit man and the woman allows for the uh the the, the abortion the abortion doctor is the hit man so the woman goes and has an abortion i mean aren't they both guilty to some degree i mean the woman knew she's breaking the law the abortion doctor knows they're breaking the law. Let's say they do it, you know, in a um, in a place disguised as, you know, a place that sells T-shirts. But it's a it's an abortion clinic. I mean, if we are, I mean, are are we logically consistent? Are we morally consistent? If we say, in other words, is it true when the Democrats run an ad that shows a law enforcement agent pulling up in the yard asking for a woman that they suspect had an abortion? And it freaks a lot of females out, and the Republicans say, I don't want that. I mean, I, I don't want the woman to be put in jail. I don't want anybody to be go to jail. I mean, are, are, you, are you consistent or inconsistent in your belief that life is precious? I mean, what, I'm, I'm putting the onerous on our side. I mean, it's easy to pick at the Democrats because, I, you know, I don't believe fundamentally in what they believe in. But, but I believe that life begins at conception. I think abortion is the taking of human life. But, but I've often caught myself saying, I don't know if I want to say a woman should go to prison or a woman should go to jail or, or jail or somebody should be arrested. Should somebody be arrested or not? And and is it consistent to say, I am pro-life and I want to pass laws that protect life. But when someone breaks one of those laws, I don't really want anything to happen to them because living gets messy and life gets in the way. I mean, are we being totally and completely hypocritical in saying one thing until it gets to that point? Uh, once again, the pro-life movement has long insisted that it really doesn't want to push mothers, excuse me, punish mothers who obtain abortions. How else do you treat people who break a law? I mean, if the state passes a law that says abortions are illegal past 15 weeks, a woman has an abortion in the 36th week, the woman obviously broke the law. If the woman broke the law, why should we treat her any differently than somebody who robbed a bank? Hmm. Puts us in a bit of a quandary, mm, doesn't it? It does. Let's go to the phone. Matt in Florence. Good morning, Matt. 
Hey, guys. Um, on the topic, I, I guess maybe I'm a fair-weather Republican because abortion's not really uh, – I have I have no opinion on it one way or the other. Uh, I vote I vote Republican uh, for other things, uh, the economic side of it. So you have um, no opinion on abortion, Matt? But, uh, no, I don't. I honestly I, – I consider myself completely uh, – uh, I, I don't know. I just don't think about it. Like I have no opinion on it one way or the other. Um, uh, that's that's just my my personal thing on it. Like I, I don't want to get in the way. I, I'm not a pro-life person. I'm not a pro-abortion person. I just don't. I don't even. I'm, I'm not going to. It doesn't pertain to me. Is the way I see it. So I don't. I don't really have a stance on it. But uh, if they went after doctors uh, in the states where it's illegal, the doctors that are performing it, that would probably have a greater effect. Um, than you know, going after the women who who get the abortion. Uh, if they go after the doctors who are doing it, it seems like that would uh, be uh, the the middle ground. If you were looking for a middle ground way to way to do things to to curtail it and taper it off, if a doctor knew they were going to go to jail for performing them, um, then it seems like that would eliminate them more. But it's not like they if they cross state lines, then and we said states' rights and all that stuff, then then it is what it is. Um, if they cross state lines to a blue state where they can do whatever they want to, then uh, that's 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 what we we said we always wanted. So, um, but that's just that's just my opinion. I sure. know it's, it's probably not on on this radio show with the listeners. I know that so, uh, a conservative uh, claiming they have zero stance on abortion is strange, but I just don't. I don't. Fair enough. If that's the way you feel, that's the way you feel. Eric Swalwell is running an advertisement. This is what led me down this road. Um, and I'll quote. I mean, Mary Anderson, an officer asked. Yes, Mary replies. I have a warrant for your arrest. A warrant arrest for what? Miss Anderson responds. Penal code 243 violation, unlawful, unlawful termination of a pregnancy. This is my personal business, she says. That is for the courts to decide. The officer informs her, adding that her medical records have been subpoenaed and the abortionist responsible was now in custody as well. Once again, I mean, if we are pro-life and, and, and you say that the government's job is to protect the unborn, what happens to those who break the law? Republicans have historically said, I want, you know, I want to save lives, but I don't want the woman going to prison. I don't want the woman going to jail. I don't want the abortion doctor going to I don't want anybody going to jail. Well, what if abortion, what, what, it, what would stop abortion doctors from performing abortions on women who want the abortion despite breaking the law if there is no penal judgment, if there is no law being broken? I mean, we know there's a law being broken, but is there going to be an enforcement or not of the law, right? I mean, is, is that a fair question? Is that a fair summation? Is that a fair um, quandary to put ourselves in? I think it absolutely is. Once again, part of the conservative movement for a long time, the pro-life movement within the conservative movement uh, have said that they don't want to punish the mother who obtains the abortion. The mother broke the law. If we're really and truly pro-life, why do we not want to punish the person that broke the law and had the abortion in the 30th, 35th, 36th week of her pregnancy? Let's go to the phone. Sam in Darlington. Morning, Sam. Morning, y'all. Gotten a, gotten a hot topic here, uh, and uh, it's a fair question. I, personally, my answer is that uh, the state law or community enforcement has limitations. Uh, the, the natural 
primary protector of an unborn baby is the mother. And uh, if she's not on board, um, you know, maybe she doesn't she doesn't watch her diet or she she takes uh, methamphetamines or something. You know, that can endanger the baby. So how far can the law go? Uh, now she has pills available. It can be obtained in secret, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, it's just that the, you know, the, the law is, the primary law is the word of God, and the primary enforcement mechanism is the the will of the mother and, and of her uh, supporting people to to obey that law and and the state law and the sheriff and all can you know you just, you can't you can't practically um replace that you know you, you you've got you can use the state law to to nudge somebody in the right direction or to guide somebody in the right direction um but uh something as as um, potentially secretive as an abortion is, um, especially in the early months, you know, I, I think we just need to admit that the state law can't do everything. Sam, let me ask you a question. You're a thoughtful man. Is 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 abortion a violent crime? Um, well, it, it, there again, it depends on why. It's sort of like manslaughter. I mean, it's it's a type of manslaughter. Uh, but now sometimes there's. Uh, you know, self-defense, I'm not going to know all the legal terms, but, you know, okay, is it really self-defense? Is it, you know, and so you have to sort of judge it case by case. Uh, that's why you have trials for for manslaughter, murder, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it, it certainly can be a crime, um, but, you know, in a, in a few, hopefully a fairly few uh, um, unusual cases where you have, you know, suppose um, suppose a woman's pregnant and she's poor and she's got three children and uh, the doctors are telling her that if she continues this pregnancy, there's a 50% chance that both she and the baby will die. You know, they're not saying it necessarily happened, but it might. Uh, and she's thinking, okay, if I die with this one, trying to save this one, then the other three are going to be left without a mother. And, you know, it's that, that kind of thing that, you know, it's got to be case by case, really. Um, kind of interesting. Thank you, Sam. appreciate that. Let me go to Rev for a second here. You ready? You're kind of my uh, my guinea pig here okay. for just a minute. Is is um is someone taking a gun out of a convenience store, shooting the clerk in the head, killing them dead, is that a violent crime? Of course it is. Is a car running off the road at 100 miles an hour and the driver being thrown out of the seat into a, into a uh, tree dies of massive head trauma is that a violent crime a crime mm-hmm. oh there's not a crime it's an okay. accident it, i'm not stick with me for a okay. second so when um when, when when someone does the exact same thing after drinking 12 beer is that a violent crime runs head on into a car I kills a going. i mean there, there's a lot of ambiguity yep. i mean there, there's a lot of fogginess here ambiguity be a, a a lot of fogginess here the point i'm trying to make is um if we're going to allow the defense to be, it's my personal business, then when is it not your personal? It's my personal business that I decided to go get drunk. 
I mean, if, if DUI, if driving while drunk and killing someone is reckless homicide, a vehicular homicide, um, because it's against the law, why is someone who decides to conspire with a doctor, an abortion doctor, and have an abortion when it, they know it's illegal? Once again, I'm not talking about life, incest, rape, you know, or excuse me, rape, incest, life of the mother. I mean, Sam categorized, you know, the... Uh, if if the woman's life is is threatened, I get it. I mean, we've got provisions, we've got stipulations, we've got exceptions to that. Uh, you know, the Hyde Amendment, rape, incest, life of the mother. What if it? What if none of those apply? What if this is an abortion of convenience? And her only defense is that this is my personal business. Um, is that a legal defense? Is that a legitimate defense? Is the point I'm trying to make um, that there's an? Uh, I mean, if somebody's got to make the allegation, right? I mean, some law, and if it's not law enforcement in Eric Swalwell's commercial, who is it? I mean, if a woman conspires with an abortion doctor and breaks a state law, has an abortion in the 35th or 36th week, I mean, I think that's a violent crime. Personally, I think you take human life, innocent human life. Anytime you take innocent human life to me, that's a violent, and you break the law, that's a violent crime. But... But, but, but Republicans and conservatives historically said, I want to stop the abortion, but I don't want to put the woman in prison. I don't want to put the woman in jail. How do you enforce that without there being some sort of punishment or judgment? Um, let's take a break, come back on the other side, and we got a call. We'll get there as soon as we can. Somebody uh, put something on Facebook a second ago and said, Ken, stop talking about abortion. Start talking about transgenders. Start talking about, I mean, from now till next Tuesday, talk inflation, inflation, <laughs> inflation, inflation, uh, to which I respond, we're good here in South Carolina. Nothing to see here. Tim Scott will win. Henry McMaster will win at some of the swing states that, that are coming down to the, um, as we say in the country, the short rows as we head ever closer to Election Day, midterm um, 2022. Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern is with us. Jared, good morning. How are you? I am well. How are you? So we are one week away from the midterms. I don't want to uh, count the chickens before they hatch, but it looks like the Republicans have a lot of momentum, and some of the trending is suggesting that. You say what? Yeah, I think that's, especially when you look at the, the House, I think that's absolutely the case, right? And, and most of the uh, forecasts out there, including uh, the Fox News power ranking, show that, um, you know, Republicans are, are looking at a majority in the House of between, you know, 15 and, and 25 seats or so. Um, not a huge majority, but certainly a governing majority, right? Enough to probably get, because uh, when you get fewer than that, you run into some issues, right? Does it make an awful lot of, of members that the kind of... Uh, you know, throw the wrench in things, as, as we've seen over the last couple of years with a very slim majority by the Democrats. I think the Senate, though, remains a, uh, a jump ball in many ways. And listen, one of those races that's going to decide the Senate is, uh, you know, just to the north in North Carolina. That Senate race um, has really tightened uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks. They had a debate, uh, I think, over the weekend uh, between uh, Congressman Budd and and uh, Cheryl Beasley, the, the former judge, um, who uh, is won statewide elections before, um, and that seems to be a race that's really shaping up to maybe be uh, what decides control of the Senate. Obviously, um, you, you know, you guys are kind of surrounded by good races. You got the Georgia race too, uh, that's uh, uh, looking to be, uh, you know, as close as ever. I, I think that you are seeing. A, um, a a push, particularly from Democrats in a place like Georgia, to try and shore up uh, not undecideds and swing voters, but their own base. You saw that in the visit over the weekend by former President Obama, right, and really trying to rally uh, Democrats to get out, show up, and vote. 
Um, and you're going to see that um, play out over the next couple of days uh, with Trump showing up in uh, Ohio and uh, Pennsylvania. Jared, you mentioned Ohio. It seems to me one of the storylines not getting a lot of attention, um, Florida and Ohio what were kind of the states Republicans had to win to have a chance to win the presidency. I'll make the argument that Florida's not a swing state anymore, and Ohio's trending that way. Uh, do, do, do pundits at the national level perceive Ohio and Florida in particular to be more advantageous uh, to the Republican Party? Yes, I think so. And, and listen, I think Ohio has been trending that way for a little while. Now, that being said, uh, Tim Ryan, who is the Democrat running in that Senate race, has sort of run a, a race uh, conceding that, right? He has not, for instance, done events with uh, national uh, Democratic figures. He is running on sort of a blue-collar, um, you know, he, he grew up, he's from Youngstown, um, sort of talking about those issues of, of the economy, um, bringing back industry to that state. You know, Florida uh, is going to be... Uh, I think, a state that we look at to to sort of answer that question. Is it still a swing state? I think people sometimes forget um, when Ron DeSantis won four years ago how close that race was. He won by like a percentage point. It was a very close race um, in which he was not favored to win, um, at least according to polling that we've seen in the last couple of weeks of that campaign. He pulls out that win, um, and he's probably on pace to win – I don't know if it'll be double digits, but uh, it's going to be more comfortable, I would imagine, than it was for him four years ago. Um, there's a Senate race. We'll see how Marco Rubio does. He's still favored, obviously, to win that race. So I think, yeah, I, I think at the end of the midterms, we may be looking at that sort of 2024 map and figuring out, okay, so if these are sort of out of the swing state columns, where do they go? And what does that mean then for both uh, candidates to get to 70? Because we, we sort of saw a reshaping of it. Um, even, uh, you know, two years ago, right, with uh, some of the states that, that Trump had won and some of the states that Biden had lost. And generally, that's not the way that it turns out. But there were other states that came into play, Georgia coming into play, Arizona coming into play, right? And so uh, after this election, if Democrats have a better than expected night in, say, Arizona, in, say, Georgia, are we looking at those in a different way as well, in the same way that maybe we're looking at a Florida and Ohio in a different light? Very interesting. The 22s will lead to the 24s. Thank you, Jared. Yeah, Appreciate they it. They always do. Yep, yeah, they always never, <laughs> There's never an off-season. Uh, I'll give you a little inside information. Neighboring North Carolina, i got a buddy does a lot of politicking in North Carolina. I mean, he thinks the Republican will overperform the poll by about three and a half points in North Carolina. And he's somewhat of an insider, pretty astute in North Carolina politics. Talked to him a good bit Saturday, and he thinks the, uh, the Republican will overperform the poll in North Carolina. He doesn't try to speak to Georgia because he doesn't know Georgia. But he says he believes the Republican will overperform by about three and a half points in North Carolina. I'll say this about North Carolina. I talked to a lot of folks, Republicans and Democrats in North Carolina, who all have said to me, listen, this race is not getting the national attention it should, that it's going to be a big race um, and, and that it's kind of getting overlooked when you think about Pennsylvania and Georgia and Ohio and, and Arizona. Two um two non celebrity candidates. I'll, I'll it's, it's not no Doctor Oz or Herschel Walker or you know or anything. Guys who wrote books and all that good stuff. Thank you, Jared. Appreciate your time. It is. I mean, North Carolina's got two um very predictable um candidates. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Jim in Florence. Morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So, Ken, uh, back to abortion real quick. Uh, it's interesting that we're willing to lock up the doctors who are predominantly male but we don't want to lock up the women 
for obviously all women. But uh, it kind of leads to the question, well, who's really um, privileged here that uh, you can kill a baby uh, but, but not suffer any uh, criminal consequence for it? Um, but, but back to the, back to the midterms, Ken, uh, what I'm finding interesting is we constantly hear about um, this concern about migration in the country of uh, liberals affecting other states as they move in, whether it be Texas or Florida or um, Idaho, uh, Iowa, I think, is one as well. Um, but anyways, it doesn't seem to be the case. It actually seems to be the opposite effect. Uh look no further than Horry County, one of the reddest places in South Carolina. Um, I'd like to get your take on that. And then also, too, what do you think will be the biggest upset um, on both sides of the coin, the, the, um, the Republican who should win but loses and the Democrat that should win but loses? Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that. That's interesting because for a long time, South Carolinians were concerned that people would come from New Jersey and New York and and Michigan to bring some you know more less conservative philosophies and uh, but that's just not the case. The numbers are, are basically overwhelming when it comes to Horry County. I mean the, the 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 transient population that now lives in Horry, Georgetown, really the South Carolina coast. I mean you can look at the coast now. Charleston's a unique. Um, Charleston's kind of the holy city. I mean there's a certain uh, elitism that um, is in Charleston, not as much in Horry and Georgetown County. Um, I mean, Horry County's outgrown Charleston County, but Charleston's still more affluent, um, less working class. People move to Charleston with stock portfolios of 10 or 12 or 15 or $20 million. They don't come down to work. I mean, there's been a lot of money made in Charleston, but but the migrant population coming to Horry County are normally, you know, guys who have worked and, and, and decent jobs, you know, saved a little money, got a pension. Uh, they want to play some golf and work at Walmart a couple of days a week, watch their Buffalo Bills or Green Bay Packers play uh, football. Uh, that was a game last night, I think, Sunday night football. But um, but it, I mean, it, it has changed South Carolina in that it's less religiously conservative. I mean, it's not that it's not as socially conservative. Freehold is from New Jersey. I mean, he lives in lived in Horry County for a good while. His family, I think, lives in Horry County. I doubt very seriously that Freehold was as um, socially conservative when it comes to abortion and you know some of the other issues that have shaped South Carolina politics for a long, long. When I, when I ran for lieutenant governor in 2010, I mean, the one crowd you didn't want to get sideways with was the um, the, the Christian conservative element in Greenville. I mean, you just didn't. Uh, they didn't have to love you, but they couldn't hate you. I mean, they they, they could question whether you really meant it or not. But you couldn't be out there. I mean, they. I'll give you an example. I was a Giuliani supporter in the presidential election. I think of two thousand eight. That would have been in 08. Um, they ran negative ads only in Greenville against me for being a Giuliani supporter. And it was basically Giuliani was a pro-choice Republican, and they were questioning whether or not I was really pro-life. It only ran in Greenville. If you run that ad in Ori, it's just wasted money. People down there just don't care much. Uh, about that now now the biggest surprise for and against um i mean i would imagine the biggest surprise would be i don't think this happens but the biggest surprise would be patty murray getting beat in washington i don't think that happens the biggest surprise i think will be um a republican winning new hampshire okay i mean i didn't believe that a couple of weeks ago but once again rev i read a lot into florida I mean, Cahaley's convinced me that there's more polling done and more credible polling done in Florida than anywhere else. 
And if if if, if, if Rubio's up ten and DeSantis is up ten or twelve, that's not an antiseptic event. That's not a one-off. I mean, that's not just something that happens down there. Now Rubio's a good candidate. DeSantis is a good candidate, no question about that. But I think I'm Hassan in New Hampshire. I think Bullduck is the person they're running against. I mean, that would be the biggest upset. I mean, Blake Masters winning would be an upset. Oz winning would be an upset. Walker winning would be an upset, but not a monumental, gigantic upset. I mean, if you asked, um, you know, the the books, uh, the, the bet makers, the, the wise guys in London, um, where are you at on, on Arizona? I bet it's 50-50. I'll look during the next break, but I bet it's 50-50. Where are you at on Georgia? I, I, I think Walker. I mean, I'm ready to do this. I mean, I said it this morning. I'll say it now. Ohio, Florida, North Carolina, done. Forget it. Republicans winning in Ohio, Florida, North Carolina. I'm ready to add Georgia. I mean, I, I may be a fair, I mean, I may, I may be caught up in the enthusiasm of watching Walker be such a good football player, and I'm blinded by that fandom. Um, and if I am, I am. I mean, it's, but, but I, I just think Herschel wins the race in Georgia um, because I think Georgia has done more than any state in America to take care of making sure what happened in 2020, and I'm talking about ballot harvesting and drop boxes and unsolicited mail-in ballots, chain of custody. I mean, all these things that were concerning in 2020 to Republican voters, I think Georgia has absolutely tightened down on who will vote, uh, how many times they vote. Um, The likelihood that a dead person votes seven times is less likely in Georgia now than it's ever been. And because of that, I think Walker gets a fair shot, and I think he wins in Georgia. I don't know the biggest upset the Democrat could have. Uh, I would imagine, I'm thinking about Tim Ryan can't beat uh, J.D. Vance. Um, Kelly's kind of expected to beat Masters. Um, Maybe in Oregon, the governor's race. I mean, I don't have those names in front of me. Phil Knight of Nike has supported the governor, the gubernatorial candidate of the Republican Party. The Republicans haven't had a governor in Oregon since the 80s, I think. Um, the owner of Nike, the, the founder of Nike, has spent about $3.5 million of his own money in support of the Republican candidate because he thinks Oregon is just heading in a terrible, terrible economic and cultural direction. So the, the Democrat winning Oregon would be an upset because I think there have been some business forces that, that have aligned themselves behind um, the Republican. I'll try to do a better job that, Jim, as the week progresses, I'll get kind of a worksheet and we'll go through maybe 20 or 25 house races that are hotly contested, as well as the four, five, or six. Actually, as Freehold, before we went on there this morning, let's get a hold of um, someone at Trafalgar. You got to go through people now to get to Robert. Um, he's so important. So let's um, <laughs> let's go through his people to try and get him on the air sometime before the end of the week and let him kind of surmise what he thinks is going to happen as we get ever closer to the 2022 midterms. Take a break. We'll be back on the other side. Got a call. Hang in there. We'll get to you as soon as we get back in just a few moments. So it is Halloween tonight. There'll be is. a lot of kids out and about trick-or-treating. Don't come to my house. I'm going to let my dog bite you. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a big fan. Not a big fan. You know why I'm not a big fan? Why? Because grown people trick-or-treat. That's reserved for kids. I mean, there are 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old kids knocking on doors. They're not kids. They're young adults. So you're going to punish the young kids out there having no, fun on they, Halloween because some older kids may come by? and They goof it up. I mean, they really goof it up. The older kids with no mask who simply want candy. No. Go to the store and buy you some. I mean, you're 25 years old. 
this is reserved for little kids who want to be Batman, Superman, uh, you know, Flash, all these other. I mean, that's cool and cute as can be. But but about every fourth person that comes to Miles looks like they're 25, <laughs> voted for George H.W. Bush, <laughs> got and a full beard and morning candy. And you I'm just open not the door the and they're like, trick yeah. or treat. Yeah, at least put a mask on. <laughs> Big, deep voice. Yeah. yeah. Trick or treat. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Here is Rujan. Morning, Rujan. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, one of the things that, that I think has been greatly overlooked in this whole abortion debate is the racial aspect of it. Um, I, I've, I've done my research, and I know that that uh, there was not a Republican slave owner in the South. The second thing is, um, in this whole abortion debate, the, the right for a woman to abort her baby is superseded by the fact that uh, Margaret Sanger and her whole organization, and then everything after that, was a out-and-out uh, campaign to destroy and get rid of the African-American race and all those individuals that they felt were de- undesirables. And, and that's not, that's not what's being, uh, you know, being reported when 40% <clears throat> upwards of, up, 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 actually beyond that, when 40% of all abortions are, are, are committed or performed on those individuals that make up less than 7% of the population. And I'm talking about the, the Af- African-Americans, make up 12%, but of that, 7% of that, that population are black females. When you've got that many individual babies being aborted on that particular part of the population, that is a travesty. And that's, not, that's, 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 that's out and out racist. And that's not what's being said. A woman's right to choose has nothing to do with, with what this thing started out as. That's what it's morphed into. What it started out as, as a as a, as an attempt to get rid of all those individuals, i.e., black people, uh, individuals that that were not up to their standards, and, and and we can take that into a point where we can say that anybody that is not of the academic white elite northeasterner is not up to the standards. So therefore, that is the person they want to get rid of. That's the person they want to silence, and that is the person they want to kill. Unfortunately. Most of those people are black. And Thank you, Rujan. That is what the, that's the problem. Thank you. Appreciate that. That's, that's the guy with his numbers and facts. Um, I mean, I just read two consecutive years. I mean, I don't know about this past year, but the two consecutive years prior to COVID, there were more black babies aborted in New York City than born. I mean, is that, I mean, is that who we are? I mean, is that okay? I mean, I'm not the one that gets to decide how many black babies are aborted in New York City, but 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 somebody does. I mean, is that okay? I mean, are we, are we okay with that being the conscious of the country? And I get that we don't want this election to be about abortion. I get that, and it's not going to be. I mean, there's no way I can turn the meter. I mean, the national media has tried with every breath they have to make this election about abortion and confuse people about We act like we don't want to debate abortion because our stance is meritless. I mean, I think I think the the, the conservative movement in America, the, the pro-life movement in America today, is probably the most honorable calls to all of mankind. I mean, I get I don't have a strong opinion. I get that we don't have many women who have abortions. I understand all of that. But as one fellow former fetus to another, it's important. 
It really and truly matters. I mean, it speaks to who we are culturally and, and our, I mean, what's in our soul? What, what is in our bones? What's in our, our, are we going to protect life or not? There, there's no doubt that the Republicans gain control of the House and Senate if we continue to talk about the economy, inflation, but we can't be flippant and dismissive and just agree to not ever go there. Once again, when Roe v. Wade got overturned, Dobbs becomes law of the land, the states become empowered. And the states are going to pass legislation. And a lot of senators and House members um, have said, I don't want the woman to go to jail. What do we want to happen to a woman who breaks the law? That's the point I'm trying to make. If we pass a law that says abortion is illegal, the woman can't say it's my personal business any longer because she has violated the law. How do you not call her a criminal when she broke one of our, you know, state-sponsored and endorsed Laws of the of the um whatever state you live in. Let's go to the phone. Got about a minute. John in Pamplico. Hello, John. Hey, Bubba. How's it going? Hey, John. Yes, sir. Hello. You're on. Yeah. Okay. I want to make a, a point. I heard you talking about abortion. Uh, why should abortion be legal? I mean, we've got a morning after pill. We've got birth control. Uh, I think it's just stupid for it to even be legal. Thank you, John. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, it, it's legal. I mean, what I think Clinton said, you know, I'm um, legal and rare. I mean, we want to have fewer and fewer and fewer abortions. I hope we can kind of agree on that, that, that an America with fewer abortions is a better America. I mean, I know I believe that, and I'm for the, the rape, incest, life of the mother exemptions. I mean, I do think a woman should have a choice to carry a baby that she didn't willingly nor voluntarily um, have. Um, consensual sex is a different animal. But, but, but you know, it's, just, it's a complicated debate, and, and I think Republicans have to think through it. Back in a minute. The, um, the world of music knows no bounds, right? I mean, if you can make a song and it lasts, I mean, it's just still a, I mean, it's, a, it's kind of an iconic It's tune. a classic. It, it's sure. absolutely classic. And it was a hit, maybe. Ah, werewolves of London. <laughs> the creativity knows no, no bounds. The creative spirit knows no Limits and bounds. Let's go to the phone. Someone held on during the break. Sam in Darlington. Hello, Sam. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking a, a follow-up call. Uh, on the abortion issue, I wanted to give a shout-out to what I think is the best uh, website I have found for thoughtful discussions of these issues. It's called. It's the organization called the American Association of Pro-Life uh, uh, obstetricians and gynecologists, AAPLOG, and they have a website, uh, applog.org. Um, I recommend that to anybody that wants to think about this. These are these are um, professionals. They're board certified folks. They they deal with issues every day, and uh, and they got some really thoughtful articles on there. So Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. that. I've read that. I've read some of the, um, and it is a lot of chat rooms and whatnot. They have a lot of um, thinking and articulating themselves from a professional and, uh, and medical perspective, uh, along with being uh, pro-life. Rev and I were talking to the break for a second ago, and I'm just trying to, I mean, I, this is a bit provocateur, but but when we when you look at Eric Swalwell's, I mean, Rev said it's just, um, I mean, it's political positioning, political, political scare posturing, tactic. political scare tactic. Okay, I'll accept that. I mean, it is. And Smallwell has very little credibility but in I mean, my world, but of think, Okay, but does he have credibility when he says this? MAGA Republicans want women arrested for having an abortion. This is what it looks like. And then he plays his ad. And, and an officer walks up to the door and says, Mary Anderson, 
And she says, that's me. I have a warrant for your arrest. Arrest for what? Miss Anderson asked. Penal Code 243 violation, unlawful termination of a pregnancy. She responds by saying, that's my personal business. That is for the court to decide, um, said the officer, adding that her medical records would have been subpoenaed and the abortionist responsible is already in custody. Is that what we want? Let me ask you this, Rev. Is that what you want? <sighs> so you want it to be a law, but you don't want to enforce the law. And, and I know that, that a punishment of some sort, whether it's jail or fines or whatever, that's the mechanism for enforcing the laws of our land, right? Okay. <sighs> it's very difficult. I don't know where I'm at. And I mean, Swalwell, you would expect this. Um, the husband runs to the door. No one is touching my wife. Um, the cop instantly draws their gun, you know, waving the gun at the family. Right, right. Um, turn around, put your hands behind your back, says the officer to the father. Um, the daughter's crying in the background, the one they chose to not abort. Uh, I love you, honey bears. So, I mean, it, you know, we're just enforcing the law here is what law enforcement says. And then, it, um, you know, elections have consequences. That is political scaremongering. But, but, but is this campaign, I mean, it's, it's an act of fiction, right? I mean, it, it, there's no question about it. It's a work to fiction. It's an act of fiction. Um, but, but in a post-Row America, when a woman breaks the law, should we or should we not arrest that woman and the abortion doctor for breaking the law? That's kind of where I'm headed. Mm-hmm. Um, what sort of penalties or fines should be associated with breaking the law? Part of the conservative movement has historically been um that we pro-lifers don't want women to be punished when they do obtain an abortion but what if the abortion is illegal i'm going to do you lock the hitman up but not the person who paid the hitman to kill the husband or wife or you know a girlfriend or boyfriend i mean those love triangles i mean we've heard stories about that i mean they do i mean cops have shows about it i mean uh, 48 hours had an entire episode about somebody hiring a hit person to kill their husband or wife. I mean, if abortion is murder, why would we let the murderer off? If abortion is murder, why would we let the mom, the female, and the abortion doctor off? I mean, are we going to enforce the law or not? I'm not defending Swalwell's tactics, but but either it's a, it is your personal business or you're breaking the law, which makes you a criminal. Is it your personal business or are you breaking the law, and should you be charged with a crime? Can't have it both ways, right? I mean, we want to save babies. We want to stop abortions. Everybody doesn't agree with us. Everybody doesn't want to stop abortions. Everybody doesn't want to save babies. What happens to those who don't want to stop abortions, who don't want to save babies, when saving babies and stopping abortions becomes a law in that state? What should happen to a woman who has an abortion in 32 weeks in her pregnancy, and what should happen to that abortion doctor? Let's go to the phone. Here's Steve in Florence. Good morning, Steve. Hey, morning, guys. Um, you know, in these blue states where they want to have abortions, they should also pass a law that lets the father off so he doesn't pay child support. They want to be inclusive. Um, you mentioned something about transgenderism or something. I was reading an article, just kind of stumbled across it, that EPA, I thought that just caused cancer, but that's causing gender dysphoria they're looking into or something. Um, and for Halloween tonight, pro tip, I don't believe in um, trick-or-treating. I believe more in the tricks. Just put an empty bowl out that says, please take one. It's not too late to teach kids about disappointment in their life. 
Thank you, Steve. Steve, kind of edgy. Kind of edgy. I don't know if I'll put an empty bowl out there. <laughs> I just don't, I don't want the 22-year-old young adult coming to my door with no mask on. I'm saying trick-or-treat. Uh, that, that, just, that upsets trick me. Trick-or-treat. Yeah, trick-or-treat with a, with a lot of bass in his voice, <laughs> as if he's the bass singer of the Goat Ridge Boys. Let's go to the uh, Let's go to the phone. Our, our call just dropped. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. 843-661-0937 is our number. And I'm not trying. I'm not doing the, the Democrats' bidding. I'm not trying to reposition the debate away from yeah, people might the be economy. saying why are you talking about this now wait until next week I mean, after the midterm the people we're talking to um i mean it, I, I just think that there's an honor why aren't we talking about abortion there's a good question why are we not defending i mean if we wanted roe v wade overturned and that power given to the states why are we not willing to discuss it i mean it's kind of what Lindsay said I mean, do you or do you not want to debate it? Do we do we not? I mean, I don't want a federal policy. I want it to be states regulated because, once again, I'm a constitutionalist. And I think the Constitution affords the states the right to make decisions based on what should or should not be allowed in Oregon or Washington or, or Nevada or Arizona or South Carolina or Georgia or wherever one may live. I mean, that has always been the argument of the constitutionalist conservative. The federal government should have never had that power. Well, if we're going to give that power to the state, what sort of enforcement mechanisms are in place? I mean, it, we, don't, we don't live in a hypothetical world. We just simply do not. Politics is not an academic exercise. I mean, it is at Harvard and Yale when you learn about political science and you learn about um, elections and history and all that. I mean, yeah, that's an academic exercise. But the, but the implementation of American politics is very real world. And you've got to have answers when there are questions that arise. So if we want to stop abortions and some women refuse to agree to that law and some abortion doctors continue to break that law, what happens to the perpetrators? Here we go. You ready? Of that crime. Because it is a crime. Once state law prohibits that from happening past a certain point. Let's go to the phone. Angela in Florence. Good morning, Angela. Good morning. I have two points real quick. First of all, as far as abortion enforcement of the law, I think it should be enforced. I mean, what's the use in, in putting a law in place if it's not going to be enforced? That's the problem we have in the judicial system now is we're not enforcing our laws. And so people are still doing everything. I mean, it's just it's ridiculous. So I do think it should be enforced. Um, it's manslaughter. And they should go to jail for manslaughter um and then second thing uh you were saying that you know we were talking about abortion and all that because you know we've got this election in the bag uh i'm not sure about that um but one thing that we need to be talking about is education because the south carolina superintendent of education um race is is extremely tight right now and we've got to get ellen elected um to save our children so we need to be talking about education the debate is wednesday night at seven on south carolina etv um make sure you know everybody watches it and we really need to to get ellen in in that office thank you angela appreciate the call appreciate the um the work she does for uh for the conservative calls i'll say this um, I said it before the election cycle began. I'll stand by my comments. Um, I think this is, I think the superintendent of education race in South Carolina today 
this is the most important race the state will have on the ballot. Now, now you could agree that, you know, council races or mayoral races or some other races are important, but this is going to be a contested race. Um, some of the macros favor the Republican, no doubt about it. Um, and, and when I say it doesn't matter to the people I'm speaking with, the, the point I'm trying to make is nobody's listening to the show in Ohio or Arizona or Georgia or, you know, Pennsylvania, some of the swing states where the debate is about inflation and uh, the Democrats are trying to make it about abortion and some of the other issues um, that the majority of January 6th and the commission, the investigation, most people don't care uh, very much about that. They, I mean, they care. They're just not basing their vote on whether or not it was an insurrection, whether or not a woman should be put in jail for having an abortion. The majority of people are basing their vote on why are eggs and milk so damn expensive? Why is gas so expensive? Why, when I filled my heat tank up in Pennsylvania last week, it was $800 last year, it's $1,250 this year. Whose fault is that? I mean, it's the Democrats' fault. It's the modern monetary theorists' fault in general, but it's the Democrats who espouse and, and kind of maintain that's not a dangerous suggestion to make. But I want to go back to education because uh, I intended to do this probably Thursday or Friday after the debate, invite either candidate to call in, you know, the Democrat-Republican. Uh, Ellen would argue that she's uh, not only facing the Democrat voter, but she's facing the education cartel. How many education, uh, that's my word, not hers, how many uh, members of the education cartel will cross over and vote for the Democrat in this single race? I mean, it will be some. I mean, there's no question about it. The superintendent of education in South Carolina is not going to win by the same margin the governor does. Simply not. I mean, it's not going to win by the same margin the attorney general does. They're going to win by a much smaller margin in a much closer race. And there's kind of a debate between education insiders about will Ellen or will Ellen not extend a olive branch and will some of the education establishment, I'll be kinder, the education establishment members accept that and do they genuinely try to address some of the failures and ills of public education in South Carolina? Are we going to have choice are we going to have competition i mean we have some choice we have some competition but the education lobby has done a real good job of discouraging the amount of choice and competition that i think is needed to create a better educational i mean a a system driven by outcomes i mean what what are the outcomes how good at educating young people are we how can we get better i mean that's been kind of a secondary debate The, the the priority has been you know what's in this for the education establishment and the education establishment has refused to embrace nor accept the, the change in competition and some of the choice elements that I think are so dramatically needed um, if we're going to get better at educating young people in South Carolina. Let's go to the phone. Johnny in Hartsville. Good morning, Johnny. Good morning. Uh, I don't know if anybody else has made this uh, relation, I guess. Uh, what about the people that if a woman has been murdered or killed by no fault of her own and she's pregnant, they charge them with both the death of the mother and the unborn child. I don't know if anybody's talked about that, but that's an aspect to look at, I think. And John, I'll listen off the line. Thank you, sir. There, there's a lot of inconsistencies in the debate. I'm trying to point out an inconsistency on our side. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be so one-sided as not accept. I mean, a lot of radio show hosts believe every problem that America's ever had in all of its history is because Democrats have been in charge. I, I just don't buy into that. I mean, I think Republicans have got a lot wrong. So, so for argument's sake, the Republicans gain control of the Senate. We get a Republican president. 
and a Supreme Court justice unexpectedly dies. We, we replace that liberal justice with a conservative justice. We replace it with a justice who is the devout Catholic who we believed would overturn Roe v. Wade. And that's where we are. So Roe v. Wade gets overturned. Dobbs becomes law of the land. All Dobbs does is say the federal government does not have the authority any longer to dictate abortion policy. That power is now vested and trusted in state legislatures all over the, the country. So all of a sudden, Mike Rickenbaugh, Jay Jordan, Philip Lowe, Roger, uh, Roger Kirby, and a lot of others, um, Terry Alexander, I mean, I could go on and on and on and on about you know these members of the General Assembly who have a decision to make. Well, well, as part of the decision, they pass a law. And the law says we prohibit and make illegal abortion past a certain point unless the woman rape, incest, life of the mother. I mean, that, those are the provisions as we speak. But, but all of a sudden, a woman decides that despite what South Carolina has done, a woman in Horry County decides, I'm going to find me an abortion doctor, and I'm having an abortion. I didn't get raped. I was not in an incestuous relationship, and my life is not threatened, but I'm having an abortion because it's my personal right, and the government does not have the authority to tell me what to do and what not to do. But the government does have, whether you like it or not, the authority because we elected uh, you know, a General Assembly. They pass laws. We enforce those laws, or we don't. That's the point I'm trying to make. That we can't be hypocritical here. I mean, we, we always argue the left is hypocritical. The left has no core. The left have no, uh, they have no conscience. I mean, they just do what they want to do and make it up as they go. Well, if we're going to forbid someone from getting an abortion by making it illegal and somebody does it anyway, have they or have they not broken the law? Of course they have. So what happens to someone when they break that law? What is the penalty, punishment, fine, um, how punitive are the charges going to be when a woman decides to illegally have an abortion and, and has an accomplice you know, that's an abortion doctor? That's the point I'm trying to make. I mean, it, it's easy for us to say we oppose abortion, but people are still going to have abortions, and people are still going to perform abortions in South Carolina, mind you. I mean, the legal thing would be for a woman to get in a car, plane, or train and go to a state that allows her to have an abortion. But they all will not do that. There will still be abortions performed in South Carolina. When we find out who it was, where it was, when it was, how it was performed, what should be the legal ramifications of that first person, that first woman who has that first abortion outside of the law in concert with a, an abortion doctor? I mean, do we just, you know, does, does the abortion doctor lose their medical license? We got to come up with some system of punishment for people who break the law. We can't say we passed a law, but we're not going to punish anybody for breaking that law because then it's not really a law. Let's go to the phone. Tony in Calhoun County listening to WTQS. Hey, Tony. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Um, we're talking about laws, so it's kind of on topic. But if I were in California and someone attacked me with a hammer, would that guy get out the same day on a cashless bail? And if so, did the guy who attacked Paul Pelosi, did he get out the same day on a cashless bail? Is he being held over? I'm just wondering if there's a double standard here. You know there's a double standard. That's why you asked the question. Thank you, Tony. Appreciate that. I mean, there's a lot of questions that, that I don't have answers to about that. I mean, I've read a lot online and Twitter and, there's, you know, some of the rumors flying I mean, all there, there are a lot of rumors and I have no idea what happened. Um, you know, one of the critical questions, do you trust the San Francisco Police Department to get to the bottom of it? I mean, if we find out something, I mean, something doesn't add up. I mean, I, I'll agree to that. Something does not add up 
about the recounting of the story. Uh, he said he's a friend. I mean, he um, he hits him in the head with a hammer in front of law enforcement. Uh, I mean, there's a, I mean, I, I saw with the broken glasses outside of the house, not inside the house. I mean, why would the glass fall? I mean, I don't have any idea. Uh, n- nobody knows that. But but you know, I think one of the fundamental questions is: um, Do you trust the San Francisco Police Department to give it an honest uh, verdict? I, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm highly questioning of government authorities and agencies. I'm probably more so than most. But but I'd love to do a poll. How many of you trust? the San Francisco Police Department, to fully investigate and tell us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help us God. I mean, I don't. I'm not saying they won't. They might. But I don't trust them. I'm always going to be skeptical of what they may or may not say. And once again, I don't know what rumor's true. I don't know what reporting is accurate. I don't have any idea if the L.A. Times knows more than the Fox affiliate in San Francisco. All I know is reported that someone broke into the home of Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, assaulted her husband and is um, in, in some sort of um, legal, I mean, there, there are obviously legal consequences to that. But um, is this person being treated as everyone else would have been treated had they hit Dave Baker or Ken Ard in the head with a, a hammer? Probably not. And mm, who's surprised by that? Take a break. Back in a minute. 843 Couple of callers on the phone. Let's go there. Andy in Florence. Good morning, Andy. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I just want to say, you know, we've all done some things in our lives that we probably didn't get caught, probably should have gotten in trouble for. Um, but, you know, there's one thing that we're never going to escape, and that's Judgment Day before Jesus Christ. So, you know, I I personally don't think the government is is – a responsibility of the government because we've got other issues that we need to be getting, getting taken care of. And, um, and, you know, like I said, you know, everybody's going to have to stand before God one day and, uh, be held accountable for their actions. And I, I'll take it off there. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. I mean, I, I believe that, but some don't. And I do think our earthly existence requires some legal consequence or ramifications for when we don't do things that are within the law. Uh, I mean, it's kind of the, um, you know, the, um, the liberal who believes in big government and government oversight and overreach and, you know, controlling every aspect of our life. And the other end is kind of anarchy, you know, where there is no government. I mean, anything goes survival of the fittest and, you know, the fastest always win, the slowest always lose. And, um, you know, every, every task in life or every encounter we have is a competition and somebody wins and somebody loses and government doesn't have any job or business or authority to intervene in the affairs of man i mean i'm far more on the anarchist side than i am the big government liberal side but i'm not an anarchist i accept that government has to um i don't know rev government has to create some sort of contract and construct that we're obligated to do our part i mean if we're going to live in a civil society um who controls the order of which, you know, we, we navigate those waters. In other words, who decided you can't drive on either side of the road? I mean, God didn't do that, right? I mean, Jesus didn't decide. I mean, I don't, Jesus didn't say, Hey, this is your side of this is my side. And once again, I have a biblical worldview. I do believe as the caller said that ultimately we're held accountable to God. And when it comes to abortion or taxes or, or the way we live our lives and conduct ourselves, I mean, I believe that ultimately I mean, the, the last thing that scares me is Washington. 
the thing that, that strikes fear in my heart is how does God perceive this to be? You know, does this honor God or not? Um, but, but I think we have an obligation to entrust some authoritative entity with the conduct of man while we're here, don't we? I mean, if, that, if, that, if we don't have a government and we don't have anybody calling balls and strikes, then who's to say I can't drive on either side of the road I want to drive on? Who's to say a woman can't have an abortion, you know, after the baby's born? Uh, th- there's got to be some, I don't know, controlling mechanism that, that tempers our human compulse. And, and I think government is probably best equipped to do that. And you're listening to a guy who doesn't care much for government at all. But I accept that at the end of the day, that there's certain things it has to do to keep us somewhat in line. Now, I think the government oversteps its bounds. I think it tries to keep us too much in line. I think it tries to keep us in their line, standing where they want us to stand. And that's the rub I have. But, um, but when it comes to abortion, I mean, if we have a law, let's ask this. If not the General Assembly, who gets to make abortion a law? I mean, does everybody pray about it and let God speak to them and in their own heart decide you know, that, that, you know, God told me I can't have an abortion outside of 20 weeks. God told me 12 weeks. God told me abortion under any circumstance is bad. I mean, the government has to have, I mean, there's that there has to be some earthly and humanism in our earthliness and humanism involved in this um, because everybody doesn't ascribe to the same and everybody's interpretation of what is right and wrong is different. We elect people, they go to Washington, they go to Columbia, they go to city council, county council, school boards, and they dictate what we can and cannot do. And when we don't like the way they make those um, those edicts, th- then we decide to send other people there. But but I've got no problem in the government saying about abortion uh, that states have the authority, the, the, the legislative authority to say, you can do this, but you can't do that. Now, now once again, um, they're not going to ask me exactly what I want. It's going to be a collective. It's going to be a lot of people and probably a lot of different conversations. And out of that comes policy. And the policy says you can have an abortion up until then. You, you can have an abortion uh, if the woman was raped or, or an incestuous relationship or you know her life is in danger. It doesn't matter what I think about it. When I agree to become a part of the body politic, the majority wins. So there will be one. Now, it doesn't excuse anything. And God still has a certain, um, I guess, Rev, that, that God has a, a pure judicial view. I mean, I don't think God cares if Republicans or Democrats are in charge. What does the Bible say? And then you got interpretation of the Bible. Rev, interpret it a little bit differently than I interpret it. You know, the Baptists think a little bit different than the, than the Methodists and the Catholics do. And, and I think there's always that, I don't know, rub, that, that yin and yang, that, that, you know, trying to comprehend what, what it is uh, that we decide right and wrong based upon. Um, but, but whether or not we believe we're held accountable to God, I do, the caller did, we still have an obligation to pass policy that says, hey, this is your side of the road, this is mine. This is when you can have an abortion, and this is when you can't. And someone has an abortion, when, they're, when the law says they can't, they're breaking the law. When someone drives on the wrong side of the road and runs into Frio, it ain't Frio's fault. I mean, he's doing what the law said uh, is required of him. Somebody's got to pay a punishment for hurting Freehold or tearing his car up or causing enormous pain and anguish in his life. That's the point I'm trying to make. And we're real good at saying, I want to stop people from having abortions. I want to save babies. What about when somebody has that abortion anyway? What do we do? And historically, the pro-life movement has said, well, I don't want the woman to go to jail. Okay. 
What do you want to happen to the woman who had an abortion against the law? Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Good morning, David. Hey, good morning. Hey, it's going to be a happy Halloween in Philadelphia tonight. Uh, the Phillies are the werewolves of New London. Can you watch them, boys? I did. I watched the game Friday night, not Saturday night. I tell you what, they hairy, ain't they? They hairy, and they got them long beards. And 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 here's the best thing about them: they like they like Duran Duran, Dave Baker. They're hungry. They're hungry like the wolf. So I'm pulling for them too, Ken. Uh, and you said he was watching Chuck Todd yesterday. I'm trying to figure out the mindset of Chuck Todd, and here he is. This Paul Pelosi. That's the January sixth roadshow. He thinks Ken Ard's going to go out trying to hit somebody with a hammer and this and that. That's all they got, Bo. That's all they got. They, they Abortion, you're messing around with people's rights, climate change, this, that. But if you really get into the mindset of Chuck Todd, uh, Ken, you, your, your daughter, uh, Dave's sons, they went to USD. They majored in business, correct? Cor- yeah. Correct. Correct. Okay. So, you know, I majored in business. I would say 80% of my classes were in business. I mean, I had 20% were in things like sociology and political science, uh, English studies, blah, blah, blah. So these guys come from the mindset they're 80% of these sociology, vocabulary, semantics, English, and maybe out of their electives, maybe they have one or two business classes. That's their mindset. Uh, and the best two classes I ever took as far as was, was political science and vocabulary and semantics. I understand where these guys are coming from. They all use big words. They all uh, have made uh, political science into an industry. That's not a science, you know, but they've made it into an industry. So if you, you know, just check into them. They, they follow the money like you always say, Ken, and they have done. Chuck Todd has made so much money out of nothing. It's amazing. Leave you at that. Thank you. Appreciate it, David. Why do I think there's a story about Chuck Todd when he said he graduated from George Washington and he didn't? I mean, there, I don't know when Dave is talking. My mind's going to be talking about college and Chuck Todd and George Stephanopoulos and some of these Sunday morning show hosts. Um, I don't know. I remember reading something a year or so ago about Chuck Todd and and Todd's big problem today is he can't imagine a world that he can't convince people what the motivations need to be. In other words, meet the press is the quote unquote gold standard of American political journalism. And I've got this obligation to convince people what they need to be. He's killed it. But but that's what I'm saying. But he can't come to grips with the fact that he does not have that. There are far more people interested in what Elon Musk has to say than there are what Chuck Todd has to say. I mean, if you want to go on meet the press and talk about politics or Joe Rogan and talk politics, you're a nut to not go on Rogan show because you're going to be in front of three times, four times, five times, six times uh, the viewers then you would on meet the press. So a lot of this is spilled milk. You know, a lot of this is I can't believe that I don't have the influence that my predecessors had. Well, you're not as good at it as your predecessors were. Your predecessors, Tim Russert, was not a hack. I mean, he was a liberal, but he was not a propagandist. He was not a hack. You are a propagandist and a hack. And something about Chuck Todd, I'll try to look during the break, but I think he claimed that he graduated from George Washington, which is kind of prestigious. I mean, it's not Ivy League, but it's a cut, just a cut below Ivy League. But I don't think he graduated. I think he went late 80s, maybe early 90s, um, but didn't graduate. That's got to burn him alive. I mean, I, I, I guess the insult was um, 
I mean, if I were to go on the show, I'd say, well, Chuck is, you know, from one um, uh, one college dropout to another. <laughs> I mean, I can <laughs> laugh would about it because oh, it would drive him nuts <laughs> to know because it would reduce him to my level. You know what I mean? He's got this intellectual superiority as long as people think he went to or he went to George Washington. I mean, I'll tell you, I'm dumb and stupid. Couldn't stay in college, but a summer and a semester is all I could. Uh, either I could stand of it or it could stand of me. But um, but yeah, Todd Todd considers himself kind of a um an intellectual standard bearer. And the fact that he didn't graduate from college, you wonder at some of the cocktail parties in New York, if there aren't the Princeton and Yale and Harvard graduates kind of looking down their nose at Todd. And maybe that's his problem. I mean, maybe that's why he's so aggressive in trying to make sure he's kind of leading the charge, uh, convincing Americans to believe something other than their lying eyes. Um, so somebody texted me a second ago. You, you're telling me that Oregon is about to elect a, a Republican governor and Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, has contributed $3.5 million? That's exactly what I'm telling you. And then the follow-up text, well, I thought it was real blue. I said, look, when eggs and milk cost three times what they did three or four or five years ago, it doesn't matter if it's blue or red. It's green. Democrats have to buy grits and eggs and milk and bacon just like Republicans do, and they don't like the fact that it's twice as much today as it was previously, uh, and you can try to convince them that January 6th and this quintessential threat, you know, this this demonic presence within the Republican Party is something you need to be aware of and, and on guard by. I mean, I, the, the, the reply of all people who vote are going to be, I don't know, man. I mean, I, I've got a lot of friends in my life that, that didn't vote for Trump, and they'll tell me now, um, I might vote for him next time because I had more money in my pocket. Seems like the economy was doing a whole lot better when that crazy fool was the president uh, than when this stumbling, bumbling, dementia-ridden, you know, 80-year-old has been that we somehow were convinced got 81 million votes. Musk bought Twitter. I'm empowered today. The vaccine's not a vaccine. The election was stolen, and climate change is BS. Let's take a break. <laughs> this is what Chuck Todd thinks of himself. He doesn't have a college degree, so we have one thing in common. Uh, he talks a lot. We have another thing in common. But Todd moderated one of the debates in the Democrat primary and spoke more. Uh, Cory Booker said 2,181 words. Beto O'Rourke, 1932. Elizabeth Warren, 1637. Chuck Todd, 1633. More than Klobuchar, Castro, Ryan, God, Tulsi Gabbard, uh, John Delaney, Jay Inslee, Bill de Blasio. Um, he, spoke, he spoke more than half the field. The moderator had more to say than half the candidates <laughs> at the Democrat debate because Todd thinks a lot of himself. And um, but he's not a college. He's not a college graduate. Um, followed the late Tim Russert, who I think we can agree, Rev, was an accomplished journalist and tried his dead level best. I mean, he was a liberal at heart probably a Northeast tyrannical do-gooder, but he genuinely tried to check that at the door as much as you could expect someone to check their natural inclination or biases at the door. Todd does none of that. I mean, he believes he has the right to convince Americans what to believe, what to think, um, how to vote. And you were talking about something you remember during the pandemic when he kind of went off the rails on pleading or begging or demanding of people to go get vaccinated. You must go get vaccinated or you're killing your family members um you evil republican yeah, extremist yeah, Tucker found you, that uh that nugget as he called it i think and played it on his show last week and it was yeah he was it was during the the vax when they're trying to get everybody vaccinated he was he was almost crying when he was pleading 
go get vaccinated. You're killing people by not getting vaccinated. And I said, what? What do you really? think happens with Twitter? we got about a minute here. What, what do you think happens eventually with Twitter? As far as... Well, I mean, do you think Musk... I mean, he's obviously getting rid of a lot of the... um what, what he calls the the sensor sensitive staff. Yep. Um, I mean, do you do you think he eventually monetizes it in a way that allows it to be profitable? I mean, do you think he turns the business model around that is Twitter? I think so. I think for, first of all, I think he will allow free speech and open and honest debate. I mean, that's what this is all about for him, supposedly, right? Also, he's kind of a free speech absolutist, so he says. But he'll figure it out as far as the uh, monetizing and making it profitable. I think he'll do it. Okay, it's time for our Takes Mondays to make Friday's trivia questions. Uh, Thanks to and brought to you by our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. Um, The Gamecocks laid a big egg this past weekend. Um, Clemson did not. They didn't lay an egg at all. They didn't play anybody. But they've got a big game uh, this weekend at one of the storied brands in all of college football, that being Notre Dame. Um, I don't know if there's a bigger name or brand in all of college athletics than Notre Dame football. It's not as shiny as it once was, but it's still a big deal to go to South Bend and play the Fighting Irish. Here's my question. It's an easy one. You ready? Who did, did John Heisman coach Notre Dame or Clemson in football? I mean, the Heisman Trophy is named after John Heisman. Was he a coach at Notre Dame or a coach at Clemson? 843-661-0937 is our number. Thanks to Pepsi of Florence for sponsoring this nonsense. And we're waiting on someone <laughs> to correctly call. Did John Heisman coach Clemson or Notre Dame? Hi, you're on the air. Do you know the answer? I believe it's Clemson. You are right. Who is this and where are you calling from? This is Rick, and I'm calling from Society Hill. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate you listening. Appreciate you calling. When you say the name Heisman, my mind goes to Notre Dame. I don't know why. I mean, Heisman is a historic name in, uh, in college football, Notre Dame, a historic brand. But John Heisman, I think from 1900 to 1903, was the head football coach at Clemson hmm. and then went on to do great things at Georgia Tech. I think that's where he really made a name for himself. I, I was trying to look and see. I didn't have time. How many Heisman Trophy winners Notre Dame had? Um, they had a bunch. They've had a bunch and a bunch of a bunch of championships. But uh, yeah, Clemson is where Heisman coached, and not Notre Dame. Uh, is it Notre Dame or Notre Dame, or does it matter, Rev? I've heard Notre Notre Dame. Okay, Notre Dame. Notre Dame. Uh, remember touchdown. I mean, if I were a Clemson fan and had a little extra money, I'd figure out a way to go to Notre Dame. I mean, I would. I just think that's one of the um the great trips and all the college. It's a little bit like going to Tuscaloosa. I mean, as a Gamecock fan, I remember going to Tuscaloosa and you see the Bear Bryant statue and you see all these championships. I mean, every every street in Tuscaloosa is named after a former football coach. I got to believe that South Bend would be similar to that. Hey, let's be careful tonight. I mean, the kids are out and about. Watch out for the kids. Yeah, they don't think. I mean, they don't think for themselves. And very often, uh, they'll put themselves in harm's way. It's not their job to look after themselves. It's the parents' And all of our jobs, let's not have anything crazy happen. Enjoy your Halloween.